Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. With a long movie career in full sway and military distinctions, James Stewart agreed nonetheless to star in an adult western that might help to keep radio afloat during the flood tide of TV's popularity. Despite the name of the series, the six-shooter downplayed the trigger play in favor of developing the characters. And at hand is a story that gives you some of both. It's called The Coward, and it's the six-shooter from September 27, 1953. James Stewart as the six-shooter. The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. Coleman, America's leader in modern automatic home heating equipment and the national broadcasting company, present Jane Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of dramas based on the life of Britt Ponson, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the western territories leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. Now, in just a moment, immediately following this important announcement, you'll hear Act One of The Six Shooter. Last year, thousands of Americans who tried to get away with carelessness on the highways were killed or permanently injured in traffic accidents. And remember, accidents don't always happen to the other fellow. Unless you are meticulous in your observance of the rules of highway safety, you and your loved ones are vulnerable to the menace of traffic accidents. Every motorist should take an active role in supporting the safety movement in his or her community. Encourage driver training in your high schools. Teach your children the rules of safety on the highway. Remember, the life you save may be your own. Now, Act One... Of the Six Shooter, starring James Stewart. I had a grandstand seat, a rocking chair on the front porch of the Temple City Hotel. Not that there was much to watch. A couple of women looking at the bonnets in the windows of Bradley's Mercantile and some kids playing mummy pig over in the alley next to the bank. And the checker game in the shadow of a big elm across the street. But it was a couple of days before I was due to pick up some cattle in Atterbury for Mrs. Pritchard. And, well, Temple City seemed as good a place as any to stop over. I was considering taking a little nap when I saw Will. At least that's who I thought it was. He was coming out of the general store carrying a box of groceries. I, I couldn't be sure, though, because just as he started to climb into a wagon, another man rode up alongside and shut off my view. Well, look who's in town. You doing the marketing, Will? Thought the women usually did that. But I guess in your case, it ain't such a bad idea to switch things around. Just hoping I'd run into you, Temple. Two of my cows have been killed this week. You mean your wife's cow, don't you, Will? It wasn't two, it was three. 
The boys found another one grazing on my side of the creek this morning. You're going to have to do something about that fence of yours. You won't have no stock left at all. That fence was all right yesterday. Maybe. But this is today. Now, you listen to me, Temple. I... I figure it's about time you done the listening, Will. I want your wife's ranch. Ain't made no bones about it. She was willing to sell until you came along. She ain't willing now. I'll give you $2 an acre. That's more than a fair price. Anybody will tell you that. We're not going to be shoved off that land, not for $2 an acre or 20 Then maybe I'd better talk to Sarah, seeing as how it's her property. No! No. I'm warning you. You stay away from our ranch and our cattle or I'll... Or, or I'll... Well, go on. Tell me what you'll do, Will. I'd be real interested to find out. Come on, Bill. If it was Sarah giving him the warning, I might take it seriously, seeing as how she wears the pants in the family. The wagon moved in closer where I was sitting. I got a good look at him now. He'd changed a lot since last time we met up. He was older, and there were a couple of those squint wrinkles between his eyes. Even so, he still could have been more than 23 or 4, seeing as how he was only about 20 when we worked on the West Star Roundup together. Hey, Will! Will! Hey, Will! I thought he'd recognize me, but I... Well, I guess I'd change some, too. I wasn't getting aged or nothing like that, but I'd, uh, I'd ripened up a bit, I guess. Anyway, Will kind of glanced my way and then drove on. And from the way he was holding those reins, I had a pretty good idea of what he was thinking. This temple fella, he pushed him too far. And if I knew Will, he was getting ready to do something about it. Well, there was no point in trying to run him down now. We'd probably meet up later. So I went into the hotel and looked around for a place to sit down. The clerk behind the desk was playing a game of solitaire. Uh, howdy, Mr. Ponsett. Something I can do for you? No, 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 I think so. Room all right? Yeah, it's fine. Room's fine. Uh, real pleasure having you stand with us. Anything you'd like. Well, you the, the Black Queen. Huh? The plays on the King of Diamonds. Oh. Oh, thank you. Like to look at the Denver paper? It just came in on the stage. No, no, thanks. Just the same. I, I sort of figured on a little snooze. A little too, a little too much racket outside. <laughs> I know what you mean. No, a temple's got a voice that carries all right. I could hear him and Will arguing clear in here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Don't amount to nothing, though, Mr. Ponsett. They've been squaring off like that ever since Will moved to town, married Sarah Blake. Oh? Oh, looks like I'm stuck. Good thing I'm not playing at the gambling hall. I'd be out of 50 bucks. You see, Noah's got the idea of buying Sarah's ranch, and there ain't going to be no stopping him until he buys it. Will he need her land for any reason? Sure thinks he does. Now, if I can just get me the ace of spades and see. Forty years ago, Noah's grandfather started this town. He owned all the acres between the foothills and the creek outside. Old Temple City was named for him, as a matter of fact. Is that so? But the old man's son, Fred, well, he wasn't much good. First thing you know, he'd sold off nearly everything his dad had left him. When Noah took over, he swore he'd get all the Temple property back again. Guess it sort of stuck in his craw that the Temple's wasn't the biggest outfit in the valley no more. Dog on that black seven. How's Noah Temple been doing? Well, first folks didn't take him serious. They thought he was just a talker like his father, but he sure fooled him. Yeah, today he's got more acres than his granddaddy ever had. There's only one piece of the original Temple setup he ain't been able to buy back. That land is Sarah. Oh? Sure was a surprise when Will wouldn't let her sell it. 
Nobody ever figured he'd stand up to Noah. A man like him. Was there something wrong with him? Seven, eight, nine. What's that? Oh, well, you see, Mr. Ponder, Will's a coward. Yes, he is. He's yellow clear through. He won't ever wear a gun. If there's a posse being formed, he don't go along. And if there's a fight, he lays low. You can call him names. You can insult him. The way Noah Templeton, he just takes it. Gee, that sure don't sound like him to me. You know Will, Mr. Ponson? Used to. Used to. A couple of years ago, we worked around up together. Oh, that must have been before he moved to Temple City. Yeah, yeah. It's down in Texas. Back there, Willie Techman wasn't afraid of nobody or nothing. And for a youngster, he's mighty fancy with a gun. Techman? That's right, yeah. Oh, but that ain't his name, Mr. Ponson. Will's name is Fetter. Oh? Yeah, Will Fetter. Oh, no wonder you were surprised about him being yellow. You... You got the wrong man. Uh-huh. Well, they must look alike. This friend of yours and Will Fetter. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I do, yeah. I went upstairs to my room, started to pull my boots off. You know, it's funny, I... I hadn't been doing anything but sit all day, and my feet hurt worse than I'd been walking 20 miles. Oh. I looked out the window. That sun is just about even with the church steeple. I saw it be around 3 o'clock. Oh. I had a couple hours for supper, so I... Let myself down in a bed. Hmm? Yeah? Yeah. Well, come on in. Come on in. Mr. Ponson? Oh, oh, well, excuse me, ma'am. I, I didn't know it was a lady. I... Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Ponson. Well, not at all, not at all. I wasn't exactly what you'd call busy. <laughs> Won't you sit down? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, wait. I'll get those boots out of your way. Mr. Ponson, I'm Will's wife. Oh, oh, I'm pleased to meet you, ma'am. Will, Will told me you were in town today. He saw you. And you saw him, didn't you? Yes, ma'am. At least I thought I did. Well, you can't tell anyone he's here, Mr. Ponson. Oh? You didn't come to Temple City looking for Will, did you? Will thought maybe that was the reason. We heard about what happened in Prescott last winter when you came across Bar Cleaver. Yeah, well, you heard wrong, ma'am. I didn't come across Cleaver. He came across me. And as for Will, he... He's made a new life here. A good life. If he has to go back to prison... Prison? Oh. Well, you knew about the bank robbery in Austin and about him breaking out before... Well, you knew, didn't you? No, ma'am. Oh, I haven't been back that way since... Then you... You, you wouldn't have told the marshal? But we thought... We were sure... What have I done? Oh, 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 just take it easy, ma'am. Oh, if I hadn't come to see you, nobody would have known he was Will Techman. Well, you know, things have a way of coming out sooner or later. How much longer was Will supposed to serve? Two years. Uh-huh. Well, that's not so long when you're young. We're going to have a baby, Mr. Potts. But I almost wouldn't want to have him if he was going to grow up knowing his father had been in prison. Why should Will have to go back? Why? 
Well, I guess maybe you'd better ask the judge who sentenced him, ma'am. What I mean is they, they say it's so a man will live a decent, respectable life when he comes out. And Will's already living a decent, respectable life. He works hard. He, he never makes trouble for anybody. He doesn't even wear a gun, and he promised me he never will. Was that your idea, not wearing a gun? Before we were married, he told me about the trouble in Austin and how he broke out of prison. I suppose I, I should have made him go back. But I was so much in love, I couldn't. So I asked him to give me his word he'd never use a gun again, never even carry one. Well, it must have been kind of hard on a fellow like Will to keep holding himself back that way. It hasn't been easy. I've heard what men like Noah Temple call him. But Will takes it. He's kept his word. This uh, fellow Temple, you know, the way he and Will were going at it today, it sounded like they were heading for trouble. Won't be anything serious. Will just doesn't want us to be pushed off of the ranch. You can't hold that against him. No, 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 there's not. Then you... You won't tell the marshal over in Atterbury? Or anybody? Well, I don't imagine Marshal Sanders like me mixing into his business. This is his district. I guess he can take care of it. Anyway, he has so far. But now, look here, I... Thank you, Mr. Ponson. Well, Thank well, now, you. Now, uh... And thanks for Will, too. Well, no, well wait, wait, just, uh, wait, uh... Well, after all, you know, most of what she said was true... Sending Will back to prison might do more harm than good, but... And it wasn't up to me to sit judgment on him. I was going to be leaving town up there, so anyway, and if anything happened after that, it wouldn't be my concern, so... Of course, a man does have certain duties, even if he's not wearing a badge. A man who spots a wanted criminal, he's supposed to report it. And I always had before... I scraped some of the mud off my boots and washed my face, put on a clean shirt, and went downstairs in the lobby. The clerk was still playing solitaire. Just beat myself again, Mr. Ponsett. If I was playing in the gambling hall, I'd be ahead about $140. It's pretty good for one afternoon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, real good. About time for supper? Yeah, go right on in. Molly will fix you up. Got baked ham tonight. Fine, fine. Oh, say, uh, Mr. Ponsett? Yeah? Remember us talking about Will Fetter and him being afraid to carry a gun? Uh-huh. <laughs> One of the darndest things this happened. Oh, it wasn't any more than 15 minutes ago, I guess. Everybody's talking about it. He went into Bradley's Mercantile and he bought himself a carbine. Oh? Uh-huh. Of course, he's just trying to bluff Noah Temple. Folks are giving 10 to 1. Will don't even know how to load a rifle. Where you going, Mr. Bartlett? Dining room's over there. Uh, I guess maybe I'm not hungry yet. Say, uh... Whereabouts is Will's ranch? I think maybe I'll take a little ride. Maybe work up an appetite. We'll return to James Stewart as the six-shooter in a moment. First, a word from Coleman, America's leader in modern automatic home heating equipment. When winter comes, does your house shrink like this? Well, I guess it's time to close off that back room. There's just no way to heat it. Don't deprive yourself of valuable living space. 
Get a Coleman automatic heater and enjoy new warmth in the hardest-to-heat room. Get your Coleman oil or gas heater now during Coleman's big bonus sale. You'll get three bonuses. A new low price. Yes, now you can get a dependable Coleman oil or gas heater at a new low price. A new low operating cost. Coleman saves you up to 25% on heating bills because Coleman gives you maximum heat from your fuel. And a 32-piece set of Libby Safe Edge glassware worth $14. It's free with your new Coleman heater. Get three big bonuses during Coleman's big bonus sale. The sale is for limited time only, so see your Coleman dealer tomorrow. Look for his name in your telephone directory. Remember, comfort costs so little with a Coleman. Now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponson. was about two miles south of town, and from the outside looked neat and comfortable, well kept up. The ground stretching out behind it was good grazing land, though it was worth at least five dollars an acre, maybe more. I tied Scar to a cottonwood in the yard and walked up to the door. Home, Wills. That was it. Oh, Mr. Ponson. Evening, ma'am. Come on in. Uh, Wills not here? No, he was gone when I came back. He must be out tending the stock. Uh huh. What's wrong, Mr. Ponson? You haven't changed your mind, have you? Where's the uh, Temple Ranch live from here? It's all around. On all four sides of our land. And Temple's Ranch House. Where's that? East. Due east. Well, what's that got to do with it? What's happened? Will was in town this evening. He bought a rifle. I don't believe it. He promised me. You're wrong, Mr. Ponsett. Will isn't gunning for Noah Temple. He's out tending stock. He'll be home any minute. You'll see. Maybe. Where are you going? I hear Temple's got quite an outfit. Worth paying on a visit. You won't find Will there. He gave me his word he'd never use a gun again. You won't find him. for about a quarter of a mile, and uh, when I came to the edge of Will's property, I saw a sorrel tethered to a fence post. Looked like Will had decided to go the rest of the way on foot, so I climbed out of the saddle and looked around. There was a big break in the fence, but the cattle hadn't made it. That barbed wire had been cut. And there were four heifers and a couple of steers lying just over the temple boundary. Well, there just wasn't much question about it. They'd been shot. So I crawled through the opening and went right past a big sign that said, Temple Ranch, trespassers will be shot. I found some footprints. I figured they were wells. About 30 minutes later, I caught sight of the ranch house. It was built 
about halfway up the side of a pretty steep hill, big, sprawling building. There was a light inside, and I could just barely make out Noah sitting at a desk working on some papers. But where was Will? He had plenty of time to get here. And I heard a step and swung around. There was one of Temple's hands pacing up and down near the stable alongside the house. The way he was holding the rifle, it looked like an army sentry instead of a cow hand. All of a sudden, he gave a little gasp. I saw a shadow tighten around his throat. The sentry went down, and there was a struggle. Not very noisy, though. Not noisy enough for Temple to hear it. And then everything was quiet. The shadow stood up. It was Will Tackman. He was inching his way toward the house, toward the window where Temple was sitting. I came up behind him. I pulled out my gun. He was starting to aim his rifle. Well, drop it, Will. What? Yeah. I might have known you'd turn up. Give me your rifle, Will. Could get off a shot. At me, but not at Temple. Temple gets our ranch and I go to prison, is that it? Now, we'll talk all about that as soon as we get back to your place. Now, come on. I carried Will's rifle and led the way. About 20 minutes later, we passed another one of Temple's guards. He was dozing and didn't notice it. Still had a couple of miles to go before we'd reached the fence where we'd left the horses. Will was sort of panting for breath. All right, let's rest a minute. Okay. I thought you promised your wife you'd never take up a gum again, Will. Mr. Ponsett, I... You see them dead heifers over by the fence? Yeah. That about wipes I heard of. I found them, I... I had to do something. As long as you knew who I was anyway, as long as I was going back to prison... I had to fix it so Sarah wouldn't have the ranch taken away from her. You, you wouldn't think a piece of land would be worth everybody getting so excited about. I've been shoved around, Britt. Ever since I was a kid, I've been shoved around. Even when I held up the Austin Bank, I wasn't the one who... The one who what? Nothing. Nothing. Since I married Sarah, well, I've had to take a lot that other men wouldn't put up with because of her and because of her knowing what I was. Thing with Temple got under my skin. I made up my mind to stand up to him. A man's got to take a stand sometime, somewhere. Oh, I'm sorry, Will, but... Hey, what's that? Get down, Will! We've got you dead to rights, brother. Trespassing. I ain't alone, Temple. Rick Ponsett's with me. Ponsett? That's right, Temple. I might have known better wouldn't come along. Well, I guess four of us can take care of two of you. He won't be much use to you, Ponsett. Not in a fight. Okay, boys, move in. I could see one of his boys firing from behind a tree behind him. So I aimed at his arm. And the bullet hit him on the shoulder and he lurched forward. That meant only three of them now, but they were closer. Will still didn't say anything. He was waiting for me to make the next move. I tossed him the rifle. Thanks, Brett. He got to his knees and started across a little clearing. 
still all right when he died behind a boulder. I knew where he was heading, too. Noah Temple had been shooting from behind a clump of pines about 50 yards back. For a couple of minutes, I didn't get a chance to watch him. Temple's two guards were on either side of me now. Oh, one of them was more than eight, ten feet away. And I saw the barrel of his car being rise up from behind the bush. Uh, only one guard left. About that time, it seemed like he'd had enough. Anyway, I moved across the clearing toward the pine trees where Will had disappeared. Pulled up behind a rock. Well, there was Noah Temple. Crouched down low, his gun ready. A little bit of movement in the brush caught my eye. It was Will. He was right behind Temple. And Temple didn't know it. He was looking my way. Will had a perfect shot. I saw Will's finger curl around the trigger. But it... Will didn't fire. I couldn't figure out what had gotten into him. He didn't fire. And then he threw his rifle to one side and let out a yell. Temple! Temple turned and got off a shot. <laughs> well, he was surprised he couldn't do much aiming. And then Will was on top of him, twisting the gun out of his hands. And after that, I saw a fight the like of which I'd never seen before in my life. There, Will hit Temple across the face, and he went over backwards. And then Temple kicked, and his foot lifted Will right off the ground. But before Temple could pick himself up, Will, Will was right on top of him again. And Temple tried to reach for his gun, and Will brought his boot right down on Temple's hand. Temple quit reaching. And then Will backed away and let Temple up again. And as soon as Temple was steady again, Will drove his fist right into Temple's stomach. And Temple's hand flew apart, and he was wide open. Will hit him again, and hit him, hit him again, and again. And finally, finally, Temple managed to, to send his fist into Will's face. And Will looked like maybe he was going to go down, but he still had a fight left to, to land a right that snapped Temple's head right back. And it was Temple that toppled over, and then... I knew he wasn't going to get up again, not for quite a while. Feel better, Will? Yeah. Yeah, lots better. You had your chance to kill him. You had a perfect shot. You didn't have to fight him this way. It's the only way I could fight him, Brett. Huh? I had him in my sights. Something kept me from pulling the trigger. Maybe you'll think I'm crazy, but I kept remembering what I promised Sarah. That I wouldn't use a gun again. I couldn't pull that trigger, Britt. I just couldn't. Uh-huh. Well, let's... Let's see if we can get Temple here to a doctor. You know, it looks like he needs one. We left Noah with the dock in Temple City, and I started off for Atterbury. I've, uh... I've made up my mind to tell the marshal about Will, all about him. Sarah and Will, they agreed. They, they, they think I should, too. But then again, the way I see it right now, 
The state of Texas is looking for a gun-toting bank robber named Will Peckman, and I... I just don't think Marshal Sanders would be very much interested in a law-abiding rancher who's called Will Fetter. I'd like to take a minute here to remind you about some of the great entertainment that's in store for you on NBC Radio. Now, for most of us, Monday evening is a time to relax, sit back, and take it easy. NBC had exactly that in mind when they designed their Monday night of entertainment. You'll want to listen to the delightful music of the Railroad Hour as they resume their fall schedule of popular operettas that have entertained for so many years. Gordon McRae will be your host and star... And during weeks to come, you'll have many charming guest stars to add to your listening pleasure with their famous voices. And you'll want to relax to the melodies of the Firestone Orchestra and Chorus under the direction of Howard Barlow on The Voice of Firestone. Another great Monday night favorite is the Telephone Hour, with its wonderful program of music directed by Donald Voorhees. Yes, every Monday night, hear these three fine musical programs on NBC Radio. Coleman, America's leader in modern automatic home heating equipment, and the National Broadcasting Company have presented James Stewart as the six-shooter. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture Thunder Bay. Others in the cast were Michael Ann Barrett, Herb Ellis, Howard McNear, and Will Wright. The six-shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions, and it is based on a character created by Frank Burt. And today's transcribed story was written by him. Special music was by Basil Aslam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Hal Gibney speaking. Competing with James Stewart's busy career in movies and the flood tide of TV, the six-shooter lasted just one season, but it got credit for being a generally peaceful Western, an adult Western. That was The Coward from September 27, 1953. Next, we're going to stop by Duffy's Tavern here on Skyway Audio Theater. In her first role on Broadway, 18-year-old Jean Tierney carried a bucket of water across the stage, and that prompted a Variety magazine critic to declare, Miss Tierney is certainly the most beautiful water carrier I've ever seen. A lot of other people thought so, too. Within a few years, she had some notable screen roles, title roles, in fact, to her credit in the noir film Laura and in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Tierney was the daughter of a successful insurance broker, so... Maybe she'll have something to say about the policy that Archie plans to take out on Finnegan. This is Duffy's Tavern from September 22, 1944. Where do you leave me to eat, Archie? The manager speaking. Duffy ain't here. Oh, hello, Duffy. Uh, tonight, uh, Gene Tandy. Mm. Oh, 
Got a face that could launch a thousand ships, Duffy. Yeah, and a pair of legs that'll bring him right back home again. <laughs> Gene Tanner, you've seen her in the movies, Duffy. Uh, she's the one your wife once looked like long ago. From far away. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the way your wife is built now, you could make two Jean Tinnies out of her and still have enough left over for three Sophie Tuckers and a Charles Lord. <laughs> huh? Why is she coming down here? Uh, uh, maybe because a certain party here is not uh, repugnant to her. <laughs> you know the old saying, Duffy, uh, the lodestone has always drawn to the maggot. <laughs> uh, look, uh, Duffy, the uh, music is just starting. I'll call you back, huh? There's a movie star coming down here tonight, and, uh... What, what, what movie star? As far as I'm concerned, the only movie star, Eddie. The only one that I can truthfully say we was made for each other. Laughing? <laughs> Eddie, you know who I mean. Jean Tierney. Lovely, beauteous, vivacious, cadaverous Jean Tierney. <laughs> ah, she's lovely, Eddie. I can just hear him now. Who? Mr. and Mrs. Lovebug. Mr. Lovebug say, Honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? And Mrs. Lovebug, she say, Archie. And he say, What again? <laughs> now, Mr. Archie, this Gene Turner is a big movie star on society, girl. All right, rub it in. I ain't society. And you ain't no movie star. And I ain't handsome. And you ain't got no dough. And I ain't got a lot of clothes. You realize this can go on indefinitely. <laughs> Eddie, you forget that dames like Jean Tinney is fed up with them glamour guys. What they go for is simplicity. You're simple enough. <laughs> so what? So I ain't got no dope, but I'm going to be honest with her. I'll say to her, Jean, here we are. You, a star. I, 
but a simple, rugged man of the people. I'm poor, yes, but not so poor that I'd be too proud to have you support me. <laughs> you know what could happen if you said that? What? You could be swung on by a star. Eddie, don't argue. My mind is made up. Well, okay. If you'd rather be a mule. Look, Eddie, a little more respect, please. You have to go back to that again? Well, I suppose I can't force you to respect me. Either you do or you don't. What do you mean? Either you do respect me or you don't work here. <laughs> Honest, sometimes oh, I get... Oh, Archie. Oh, <laughs> Hello, Finnegan. Hey, Arch, could you lend me the loan at five dollars? Lend me the loan. What grammar? Finnegan, loan me the lend of five dollars. <laughs> Besides, what do you need five bucks for? To, to take out an insurance policy. The agent is here. Finnegan, me. you taking out insurance? Well, Arch, the way the agent says. No man with my intelligence should be without protection. <laughs> yeah, I agree with him, man. Uh... Yeah. Uh, what kind of insurance are you taking out? The accident. Accident, huh? Mm, it's a swell policy, Arch. Only five dollars a year. Uh, you can walk in front of a truck without getting hit. <laughs> an accident policy means if you get in an accident, the company has to pay you. They do? Yeah. The what, suckers? <laughs> hey, Arch, don't, don't tell the agent about it. He might refuse to sell me the policy. Oh, well, again, I uh, haven't got much more time. Oh, uh, Mr. Hancock, uh, Arch, this is the agent I was telling you about. Archie, meet Sam Hancock. Oh, how you do? Uh, what uh, company are you with, Mr. Hancock? The Mutual, General Fire and Theft, Liability Mutual, Fidelity Mutual, Accident Company, Incorporated. Well, it's a pleasure to know you. It's mutual. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, you see, Mr. Finnegan here is a friend of mine. I would like to know a little more about this policy. Well, it's our newest type of accident policy. Complete all over coverage and sub-coverage, reimbursement rider, premium waiver, with uh, convertible features. Mm -hmm. Well, so far it sounds very dapped. The high art. Uh, what's that convertible thing? Uh, that's in case you get hit by a car with the top down. <laughs> I can see you're a man who really understands a lot about insurance. Oh, no more than any other up-to-date, intelligent guy. Uh, now, tell me, this policy, uh, is it an endowager policy or uh, uh, parimutuel? <laughs> In other words, uh, what happens if Finnegan is incapacitated by a fatal accident? Well... If the fatality is caused by the insured getting struck by hailstones or meteors while he is walking in an incorporated village or township, my company assumes all costs of interment and funeral up to 10% of the cash surrender value of the policy. <laughs> Provided, of course, that the insured can prove that death was unavoidable. <laughs> Well, that seems fair enough. Yes, and another thing. We pay instantly. The motto of our company is, when rigor mortis sets in, so do we. <laughs> now, what about the money, Mr. Finnegan? Oh, yeah, Archie. How about the five bucks? 
The five bucks, well, uh, I, I still, I don't know. I... I have an idea. Until the five dollars is repaid, why doesn't your friend Finnegan make you the beneficiary? Yeah, yeah. So what's that, Arch? Well, if I lend you the money and uh, I'm your beneficiary, it means, uh, you know, that if you break a couple of legs or get mangled under a subway train, <laughs> I don't get hurt. Uh, okay, I'll give you the five. Good. Now, Mr. Finnegan, if you will just step over here, we'll fill out the paper. Okay. Hello, Archie. Hello, What's Miss W. What's going on here? Uh, well, Finnegan's taking out insurance. Oh, yeah? Well, that's just what Papa and my, my mama was fighting about this morning. They was fighting? Another fight, huh? Uh-huh. Your old lady swinging that baseball bat again? Oh, no, it wasn't a serious fight. Just their fist. Uh, what was the fight about? Insurance. Mama feels Papa should take out more life insurance. Why? Well, Archie, even though she can't bear to think of it, she knows that Papa isn't getting any younger. And Well, if any if anything happened to Papa, what, she'd be too old to go to work. And what could she do? Oh, Duffy, nothing's going to happen to your father. Well, Mama's more foresighted than you are. <laughs> She knows the way she's been beating him lately. <laughs> Believe me, the man I marry will carry plenty of insurance. Well, do you think that the guy that marries you would be able to get insurance? <laughs> Why not? Well, do you think he could pass the eye test? <laughs> Archie, that could be an insult. If it ain't, I'll apologize. <laughs> Well, that's better. <laughs> Touche. So, uh... So, uh, leave us not argue. Anyhow, I'm in too good a mood tonight. You know, uh, Gene Tinney is coming down Oh, here. running after movie stars again, huh? So what? You're always running after guys. But you're such a snob. You only run after movie stars. At least I'm democratic. I'll run after anybody. <laughs> Look, Miss Duffy, I think who I run after is my own penegative. Daddy Malik and his orchestra play the new dance hit, Dance with the Dolly. Tony, get here. I mean, uh, Gene Tierney. Uh, calm, calm down, Mr. Archer. Calm uh, down. Honest, I'm as nervous, nervous as a newborn new bride. <laughs> uh, hey, wait a minute, Eddie. Here she comes now. 
look at him, Eddie. Ain't she the most redundant thing you have ever seen? Well, good evening, Miss Tammy. So this is Duffy's Tavern, huh? Gene, it was Duffy's Tavern. But what you hear, it has become the bower of beauty. The temple of punkritude. Thank you. Are you Archie? I was Archie. But now I am Romeo. <laughs> Young Lockenbox. <laughs> Casserole. <laughs> so you're Jean Tanny, hmm? Well, I was Jean Tanny. And what are you now? Sick to my stomach. <laughs> What do you mean? Bower of beauty, Romeo, Archie. Girl, don't fall for a corny line like that. You know, Miss Tanny, you, you see this little red book here? Yes. See this list of names in it? Yes. Miss Tanny, this is not a milk route. However, if you don't like that line, you don't like it. We'll take a breather for a minute and try something else. Uh, by the way, would you care to uh, partake of some refreshment? Okay, I'll take a Coke. A Coke? Oh, you know. Eddie, a bottle of our very best champagne from the cellar, that uh, Pipesick 44. Sorry, we're all out of champagne. What? Who drunk it up? I don't know. All I know is the last time I was down in the cellar, I saw three blind mice. <laughs> Eddie, please, leave us desist the wisecracks. Miss Tinney is thirsty. Uh, how about a bottle of that uh, fine old Napoleon brandy? Napoleon brandy? We got that? That brown bottle on the top shelf. Does that crazy brandy think it's Napoleon again? <laughs> Look, Eddie, please. Archie, never mind. I'll just take a glass of good old-fashioned aqua pura. Aqua pura? Uh, we got any of that left, Eddie? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. There you are, Miss Tanner. Oh, thank you. Well, Eddie. Well, what? Miss Tanny ordered aqua pura. You're just going to leave her here with the chaser? <laughs> Miss Archie, aqua pure is water. Oh, oh, I guess I was thinking of aqua caliente. <laughs> You're getting in the hollow water, but a minute. Hey, Archie. Oh, Miss Duffy, uh, Jean, shake hands with Miss Duffy, the fruit of Duffy's marriage. How do you do? Likewise, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, Miss Tierney, a lot of people have told me that you and I look alike, but now I can see there's a difference. Our hair is different colors. Duffy. Your hair is different colors. <laughs> Hers is natural. Archie, you keep your stupid nose out of this. You, oh, men. Miss Tanny, wouldn't it be wonderful to do without men forever? Honey, are you nuts? <laughs> we could get along without them. Men is only a habit. Just like smoking. Do you smoke? No, I can't get cigarettes either. Hello? 
Oh, just a minute, uh, Miss Duffy, your girlfriend, Vera Fogarty. Oh, hello, Vera. Said you know who's here? Jean Tierney. Mm-hmm. Standing right next to me. Huh? Well, pretty attractive, but I've seen B-E-T-T-E-R. <laughs> what? Well, I'll tell you the rest of the date when I see you. Huh? Oh, yeah, I'd like to go to the movies. Say, what's playing at the Bijou? Double indemnity? Oh, I don't feel like two pictures. <laughs> what? Oh, well, okay, dear. I'll be there in a few minutes. Goodbye, dear. Well, Miss Tierney, I, I have to run along now. Have fun, Miss Duffy. Oh, I'm just going out with a girl. Who could have fun going out with a girl? I could. <laughs> Good night, Miss Duffy. Good night. Well, Jean, now that we're alone again, uh, how about you and me taking a stroll in the park, huh? Oh, Archie, don't be ridiculous. Cherie. Why don't you give up this pretense of frigidity? <laughs> huh? Please. You know that you're in love with me. I certainly am not. A likely story. <laughs> but I think I know what's bothering you. You think that I'm in love with Jean Tierney, the beautiful, wealthy, famous movie star. You're wrong. I'm in love with Jean Tierney, the girl. The beautiful, wealthy, famous girl. Archie, do you ever hear ringing in your ears? Yes, darling, and it's wedding bells. Wedding bells? Can you afford to get married? Why not? How much would it cost? Two bucks for a license, ten bucks for the minister, three bucks for a wedding breakfast. I make that kind of dough in a week. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> what do you say? Shall we take a little stroll in the park? I'll tell you what, Archie. If you want to take me out, I have an idea. Name it, Jean. Just name it. I the potter, you the clay. <laughs> Okay, instead of the park, we'll go to the stork club. The stork club? There are storks in the park, you know. Archie, it's the stork club or nothing. Mm, uh, I'll be with you in a minute, Jean.
friends. It's up to you to help me out now. I gotta get the dough to take this teeny dame to the store club or I'm dead. Absolutely dead. You're dead, huh? How much you need? Fifty bucks. How do you want it? Uh, what do you mean? Large or small funeral. Stop where am I going to get 50 bucks? I got How about trying Miss Duffy? I can't. She went to the movies. She had to see that double indemnity. Hey, I just remembered. I'm Finnegan's beneficiary. So? Eddie, did you see uh, double indemnity? No. Very interesting. Uh, all about two people who knock off a guy for his insurance. Uh, funny I should just happen to think of a picture called Double Indemnity, eh? Yeah. Funny I should just happen to think of a book called Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> just a second, Eddie. Are you insinuating that I would homicide Finnegan? I'm just thinking in terms of some little thing, you know, some slight mishap. His arm, maybe, or a small conclusion of the brain. <laughs> Which on Finnegan wouldn't even show. <laughs> and the agent is still here. I could collect the dough right away. To me, it sounds Alcatrazzy. <laughs> Look, don't forget the old pervert, Betty. Fair play near one fair lady. Now, let's see. Uh, what's a good kind of an accident? Uh, I read someplace that 60% of the accidents happen in a bathtub. wonder if I could get Finnegan to take a bath. <laughs> No, there must be an easier way. <laughs> Wait a minute. I got it. Eddie, give me that bunk starter. Mm-hmm. Here you are. Okay, thanks. Oh, uh, Finnegan. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, the accident insurance is all fixed up. So is the accident. <laughs> uh, look, Finnegan, would you mind to help me hang that sign over there? Uh, which one? That one, the one that says, Love thy fellow man. Uh... You just hold it up there while I nail it in. Okay. a boy. Now hold your hand still. Uh, and hold your head still now. a boy. Well, Arch, if you keep hitting me on the head, you're never going to get that sign up. <laughs> Brother, this is going to be a tough nut to crack. Uh, Finnegan, now... Would you mind doing me another favor? Uh, what is it, Art? Uh, I want you to go down to the cellar for me. That's uh, all right. Gee, you're nice today, Art. What do you mean? Uh, usually you ignore me, but today you're so attentive. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Okay, Finnegan, now down in the cellar. Yeah. Uh, here, you go ahead of me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, be careful you don't fall down the steps, Clifton. Uh, don't worry about me. Good heavens. Finnegan has accidentally fell down the stairs. Don't kid me. I know what you did. What are you talking? I was just patting me pal on the back. One does not pat one's pal with both hands and a foot. (laughs) Uh, Hey, Arch, what is it you wanted me to get down here? If you didn't already get it, you might as well come back up. (laughs) Boy, this guy is immortal. Hey, Arch, guess what? I fell down the steps. You did? How horrible. Uh, but how come you can fall down a whole flight of stairs and not get hurt? Clean living, Arch. <laughs> this 
guy has thick skulls all over his body. Uh, <clears throat> wait a minute. Europa, I got it. Uh, Finnegan, uh, have you tried the free lunch here lately? Free lunch? Ah, oh, nobody eats your free lunch here. But Finnegan, are you a nobody? That's right. That's right, I'll try it. <clears throat> oh, good. this is very tasty, Yard. Yeah, go ahead, keep eating it, then. Try that laminated herring. <laughs> oh, boy, you can... Oh. I think we finally got him, Eddie. Oh, uh, oh, Mr. Hancock, Mr. Hancock. Yes? Oh. Uh, uh, Finnegan here, he's been accidentally food poisoned. Fine, George, he does look pale. Well, uh, I'm the beneficiary. I tell you what, I'll settle for 50 bucks. Please. Okay, but uh, first I'll have to make out a report. Now, uh, where did the food come from? Uh, the free lunch. Did the insured eat the free lunch here of his own free will and volition? Yes, sir. Sorry. What's the matter? We do not pay off on attempted suicide. <laughs> Better luck next time. Good night, sir. But wait a minute, Mr. Hancock. Arch, oh. huh? it's getting late. Are we or are we not going to the store? Well, you see, I uh, I just ran out of a little money. Uh, oh, God. Oh, what a rat I am. Look what I've done to Finnegan and for nothing. What's wrong? Gene... I gotta clean me breast out of this. I ain't worthy to kiss the hem of your shoe. You know what I done? In cold blood, I tried to massacre me best friend. I suppose now you'll never marry me, hmm? Right. I thought so. I should never have done it. Archie, it wasn't what you done. It's on account of what I done three years ago. You too, huh? <laughs> What did you do? I got married. Good night, Archie. Oh. Oh, boy. It's lucky I found out in time, in addition to a murderer, I would have been a bigamy. So, hey, Archie, you got any more of that free lunch? Finnegan, I thought the free lunch made you sick. No, Archie, I liked it. Well, what was you groaning about? I was groaning about the swell chance I missed. What do you mean? Well, when I fell down them steps, if I would have hurt myself... I'll bet you we could have collected 50 bucks. Where do you late meet Dee, Archie? The manager speaking. Yeah, Duffy, that's right. Next week, uh, Reese Stevens from the opera. Reese. R I S E. Yeah, like the sun races. Okay.
the Armed Forces Radio Service. Jean Tierney was a Broadway star before her 20th birthday. According to one account, 20th Century Fox head Daryl F. Zanuck saw her in a show called The Male Animal and told an assistant to take note of her name. Later that same night, when Zanuck stopped by the Stork Club, he saw a young lady on the dance floor and told the assistant, Forget the girl from the play. See if you can sign that one. Well, as it turned out, both were Jean Tierney. She later said, I always had several different looks, a quality that proved useful in my career. We're going to have more information from Information Please next here on Skywave Audio Theater. By some accounts, the least important part of Information Please was the quiz itself, although the quiz did have plenty of mind-bending questions. During its 10 years on the air, the series brought in many celebrity guest panelists who showed what they knew or didn't in an informal setting. As panelist regular John Kieran wrote, an uproarious error or a brilliant bit of irreverence was rated far above any dull delivery of truth. Despite its spontaneity and fast pace, information please had class and erudition, especially by today's standards. Some of the guest panelists apparently, though, were nervous about being on the show well before airtime, needed some reassurance. Well, this time out, that guest is Basil Rathbone with the cast of regulars on Information, Please, from September 27, 1938. Information, Please. Wake up, America. Time to stump the experts. This is the program in which, you remember, the dust bites the Indian. Send us questions with the right answers. Four experts guarantee to answer them correctly or pay you $5 for every question that stumps them. Each question accepted wins you $2. Our master of ceremonies is Clifton Fadiman, literary critic of the New Yorker magazine. Mr. Fadiman. Thank you, Mr. Clark. Good evening, everybody. We have a very neat assortment of experts this evening. John Curran, sports columnist of the New York Times, has recovered from his recent bird calling, although the birds haven't, and is with us again together with his sidekick, Franklin P. Adams, humorist of the New York Post. Known to radio audiences from coast to coast is the famous and genial tune detective and musical expert, Sigmund Spake, author of The Common Sense of Music and Read and Weep. And to complete the team and lend it a touch of glamour, we're not so good on glamour usually, we have tonight, through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, Basil Rathbone, stage star, screen star, opening tonight in the motion picture, If I Were King. Now, gentlemen, the simple rules are the following. I'll put the question to the entire board. If you know the answer, raise your hand. A question composed of no more than two parts must be answered by one man. But if it has more parts than that, the board may cooperate. If any part is answered wrong, we lose $5. When you hear that cash register ring, that means the questioner is getting his $5. 
Finally, ladies and gentlemen, remember that information, please, is an unrehearsed, unforeseeable, and perfectly catch-as-catch-can program. Okay, gentlemen, catch. Here's the first one. For Miss Priscilla T. Campbell of Worcester, Mass., give the traditional remark or cliché made under the following circumstances. I'll give you an example. Suppose uh, one has had a succession of mishaps, of misfortunes. The comment might be, it never rains, but it pours. Well, similarly, I'm going to read uh, five of these, and you have to provide the proper platitudinous remarks. You have to get four out of five. What remark would be made by a friend during a hot summer spell of weather? Mr. Spates. Is it hot enough for you? That would be all right. How about another one? Mr. Adams? It's the humidity. Yes, it is the heat. It's the humidity. Very good. I don't know why Miss Campbell calls that a friend. By a father spanking his son. A father spanking his son. Mr. Rathbone. I only do this because it hurts me, not you. Uh, yes, uh, that uh, is approximately the classic form of that lovely phrase. This hurts me more than it hurts you, I think, is what the father usually says. Don't you remember that? <laughs> uh, three, a skeptical girl's response to a flatterer. A skeptical girl's response to a flatterer, Mr. Kieran. Oh, you tell that to all the boys. <laughs> well, not the boys. Well, uh, the girls. Yes, As yes. the case may be. Common error. Uh, by a man warned against drinking too much. A man warned against drinking too much. Mr. Spates. I can take it or leave it alone. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> Although I think this hurts me more than hurts you might do for that one, too, as a matter of fact. I wouldn't admit that. You're in a stubborn mood this evening, Mr. Spates. <laughs> uh, by a girl rejecting a suitor. By a girl rejecting a suitor. Mr. Adams. I will be a sister to you. Very good. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Adams, didn't you invent a character who dealt entirely in cliches a long time ago? Oh, I suppose so. <laughs> and who was it, Mr. Adams? Dulcinea. Dulce, Dulce or Dulce, as we got called. I called her that for short. It didn't take very long to get that information out of Mr. Adams. Uh, second question, from Edith Brillich of Sunnyside, Long Island. What classical compositions are suggested by the following popular songs? There are four of them. And we have to get three out of four, and they're going to be played by the pianist after I name the title. One, is that clear what popular compositions are suggested by the following popular songs? What, what classical, classical compositions? I beg your pardon. One, My Baby's Arms. Mr. Spades. The Cavatina by Rocks. That's what I have here. It must be right. Uh, two, Sweetheart. again. Song to the Evening Star from Tannhäuser. Gosh, that's pretty good. All right. That's correct. Uh, the Rose of No Man's Land. Uh, Mr. Spaeth again. The Minuet of Beethoven in G. That's correct again. It's getting monotonous. Uh, the Masquerade. All right, Mr. Spaeth. Cesar Franck Symphony. In D minor. Very good. It's the only one he wrote. <laughs> Mr. Spaeth, how, how do you get to know these things? Is there any secret to it? I write books about them. Oh, and, I, and you read your own books afterwards? No, I, I read my proofs. Oh, you read your proof. You I probably see. write popular songs. I will someday. Uh, third, this is from Mary G. Cyberling of Akron, Ohio. 
Oh, this is about Mr. Adams' favorite author, who's back again on information, please. This is from Shakespeare. You're asked to answer each of the following questions with an appropriate quotation from Shakespeare. For instance, what would you say to a long-winded boar? This is off the record. What would you say, Mr. Rathbone, to a long-winded boar from Shakespeare? Could you think of one? Mr. Kieran? Here will be an old abusing of God's patience and the king's English. Hey, that's very good. That's not the one I have down here. No, but it's from a good play. Yes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> well, that was just a sample. Brevity is the soul of wit might do, might it not? Mm-hmm. Well, now, here we are. We have five of them, and I think I'm going to ask you to get five out of five. What would you say to a man who wanted to borrow $100? Now, I don't know which of you is the most probable person to ask that question of. Uh... All right, Mr. Kieran. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. From? Old Polonius, delivering a speech to his son. Very good. That's correct. Two, what would you say to your girlfriend on handing her a box of candy? Uh, uh, Mr. Adams. Sweets to the sweet. Sweets to the sweet from? I've no idea. Uh, there any... I thought I made it up. That's a good line. That's a good line. You want Sweets to, use to the sweet farewell. Yes. Leah, throwing the flowers into Ophelia's grave in the last act of Hamlet. Very good, Mr. Rathbone. Thanks so much. <laughs> now, gentlemen, what would any of you say to a pickpocket? A pickpocket. Uh, Mr. Spade. Who steals my purse steals trash. Yes, from? You don't have to uh, give the ascription. I'll leave the uh, page All right. Mr. Do you Sharon. know Mr. Rathbone by any chance? Yeah, I'll go to Roderigo in the first act of Othello. Very good indeed. Very good indeed. Uh, what would a fat girl say as uh, she stood on a scale? The only one I can think of is that famous line from Richard III, a horse, a horse. Uh, Mr. Kieran. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. That's right. <laughs> oh, there's another line I just remembered from Julius oh, Caesar. Did you think of one, Mr. Uh, I thought of one non-Shakespearean about... Uh, folding their tents like the Arabs and silently steal away. Oh, no, no. I wish you hadn't remembered that. Now, I remember a line. Isn't there a line, Mr. Rathbone, from Julius Caesar called, Let me have men about me that are fat? Wouldn't that yes. do? Yes, that yes. would be very good, too. Five, what would you say if you spilled some gravy on your vest? Uh, Mr. Kieran. Oh, damn spot. That's right. <laughs> five out of five. Pretty good on that. The next one from Miss Rose Bigman of New York City. Bigman of New York City. You're asked to name four racehorses, four racehorses whose turf winnings have been over $300,000. That's $300,000 apiece, I suppose. That's a million two hundred thousand. Mr. Rathbone, where have you been? Seabiscuit? I beg pardon? Seabiscuit. Quite correct. That's one. I uh, thought you were an actor, Mr. Rathbone. Uh, Mr. Kieran? Sunbow. That's two. Farlap. I've got that one. Well, you missed it. <laughs> Looks like it. Uh, that's three. Mr. Adams, did you have one? Man of War. No, that's wrong. It's the only horse I ever heard of. Yeah, I know. <laughs> didn't, didn't make that much money. Uh, that's three. We've got to save that $5, otherwise that's going to Miss Rose Bigman, who has almost got it, Mr. Spate. Uh, equipoise. Equipoise would be quite correct. Of course, you gentlemen can't name the exact sums of money that each of these horses Well, won. that uh, far lap that you uh, didn't have on your list, I think, won $330,000. And 18 cents. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I remember the 18 cents part of it myself. That's four out of four. 
Sunbow won three hundred and eighty something thousand dollars. Three hundred and seventy six thousand oh, uh, seven hundred and forty four. I just made it up. <laughs> oh, the next question. Is... <laughs> I've got to get these gentlemen down this evening. Next one for Mrs. C. Rollins Zane of Dover, Delaware. In what famous piece of music are we reminded of blacksmiths? In what famous piece of music? There are going to be five of these blacksmith questions. In what famous piece of music are we reminded of blacksmiths, uh, Mr. Adams? Clovertor. Yes, and what's the name of the... The uh... Anvil Chorus. Yes, the Anvil Chorus. Uh, two, who was the person in the recent news who was a former blacksmith? Oh, they're thinking on this one. You have to get them all, gentlemen. You have to get them all, otherwise Mrs. Zane gets five dollars. Mr. Adams. Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> well, I'm glad he didn't hear that. <laughs> well, somebody like that was. Uh, no, no. The, uh, it would be Jimmy Hines. Jimmy Hines was a former blacksmith. Somebody ought to write his autobiography yeah, and call it yeah. Fame and Fortune. Oh, well, you let that one go. I don't care. That's one wrong. We'll hold that cash register for a moment. In mythology, who were the blacksmiths of the gods? Uh, Mr. Kieran. Well, Vulcan was one. Uh, yes, in what mythology? Well, that's in Greek. Oh, no, it's in Rome. Roman. Vulcan in Roman mythology. And who in Greek mythology? Well, it's the same uh, god under a, a different yes, name. Yes, the same fellow the doubling in brass. <laughs> now, what's his name? Any of you remember the name? Rather odd name. Hephaestus, wasn't that it? Hephaestus, yes, yes that's right. same chap, very good. For in what painting, oh, this is hard, in what painting do blacksmiths appear? In what painting do blacksmiths appear? I hope you give me the one I have down here because I don't know any other. Don't know that. The answer is Goya's The Forge. Goya's The Forge. Any of you gentlemen know that? They all seem to know it now. <laughs> A look of intelligence has crept across their faces, <laughs> flashed across Mr. Adams's face. Uh, five, name a play or a picture featuring a female blacksmith. I suppose she'd be called a blacksmistress. Play or picture featuring a female blacksmith. Don't whisper, Mr. Spaeth. You are not allowed to cooperate. Mr. Spaeth. Is it permitted to describe the play? I can't give the title, but I remember the play. Well, I'll give you ten minutes. Go ahead. Ten minutes. The play was about a, a woman who was a blacksmith of a very strong woman, and she also figured as a wrestler. Uh, yes, but that's I can't correct. give you the title of the play. It was also made into a movie. Swing Your Lady. Swing Your Lady. Featuring right. Louise Pazenda. Well, we only got uh, three out of five on that. It's going to cost us five dollars going to Mrs. Zane. Took them up in the blacksmith at last. All right, the next one from uh, Hilda Green of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm going to read two lines of three famous Shakespearean soliloquies. And you'll have to give mm -hmm. at least two of the lines that follow each. You see, there are going to be three uh, couplets, and you have to follow each one up. First. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? Oh, you know that one, Mr. Rathbone. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, for thou her maid art far more fair than she. That's very beautiful. You ought to be an actor, Mr. Rathbone. <laughs> uh, let's take the second one. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer. Would you like to do that? Swings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Uh, seriously, it's very, very pleasant to hear Shakespeare read well, Mr. Rathbone. We're very glad to have you here this evening. Free, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day. All right, Mr. Yeah, Rathbone. Yeah, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the road to dusty death. 
Out. Out, brief candle. Very good. Three out of three. Thank you very much. The next one from Jessica Samuels of New York City. Name the opera that each of the following areas are identified with. I'm going to, there are going to be five of them, and you have to name five out of five. And the, uh, this is the big surprise this evening. Mr. Milton Cross, our announcer, is making his uh, debut this evening as an opera singer. <laughs> All right, Mr. Cross, uh, will you give us uh, the aria Lago Alto Totem? La, 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 uh, Mr. Spade. From the Barber of Seville. Yes, by whom is that? The Barber of Seville by Rossini. Very good indeed. Uh, Il Balin. La, 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 You've got a very appreciative audience, Mr. Cross, but they don't know the answer. How about that, Mr. Spade? If nobody else wants to try it, I would say from Il Trovatore. Yes, that's quite correct. By Verdi. Uh, you're in fine voice, Mr. Cross. Go right ahead. Uh, the next one, uh, Lohengrin's narrative. <laughs> that, that sort of gives it away, doesn't it? <laughs> you better put another one. Tell you what, uh, I'll answer that one myself. Uh, would you like to sing it anyway, Mr. Cross? I'll sing it. Oh, I'd like to hear you. Go ahead, Mr. Cross. Well, it starts out. Low and green. And four, airy two. Airy two. Mr. Spade. From Ballow in Mascara by Verdi. Give it to us in English, Mr. Spade. The masked ball. Give it to us in German. Can't do it. All right. The Primaska de Ball. All right. Five. Uh, Dallas to Apache. May I have that title again, Mr. Uh, well, now, my Italian may not be as good as I yours. Didn't hear, didn't hear um, Dallas to Apache, would that be right? Dallasoe Apache? Yeah, I think so. Approximately. Perhaps you'd rather have Mr. Cross sing it again. Rather I'd love to hear Mr. Italian. Cross yes. sing it again. <laughs> uh, Mr. Cross, you want to give us a couple of notes? La, 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 Unless you get that, Mr. Spade, Miss Samuels is going to get five dollars. It's been worth just about five dollars to listen to Mr. Cross sing, I think. Don't get it, a singer, he's my favorite announcer. I think he's pretty good as a singer, too. That was singing you were doing, wasn't it, Mr. Cross? I tried it. Don Giovanni is the answer. And I'm afraid that's going to cost us five dollars. Is that wrong, Mr. Spade? It's perfectly correct, but frankly, I didn't place it. Didn't place it? Well, you're not infallible, are you? By no means. Oh, you are. No. <laughs> uh, the next one, from Barbara Merrick of Springfield, Massachusetts. You're asked to give three quotations from any author at all. Mr. Adams will stick to Shakespeare. Three quotations in praise of love. In praise of love. Love, gentlemen, love. Oh, Mr. Adams. Tis love that makes the world go round. Very good. I suppose that's in praise of it. Uh, from whom is that? I have no idea. Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, I have to ask two more, two more. In praise of love. 
surely you gentlemen could think of a couple of quotations and phrases of love. What have you been doing all your lives? Uh, Mr. Spade. Uh, there's a fairly, fairly recent one that goes, "'Twas love and love alone that caused King Edward to give up his throne." <laughs> <laughs> very true. Sung in Trinidad by the is that, is that native true? singers. Yes, You're not very, fooling. very popular now on a record. Oh no! Really? No. Do you want to sing it? No, That's no, something no. like all this. Right, uh, all right. You don't. Okay. I'll accept that, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, Kieran. I didn't hear what Mr. Adams said, but uh, maybe I'm repeating it. For it is love that makes the world go you round. You certainly are repeating it. <laughs> All right. That makes it perfectly clear. We've got that twice now, Mr. Adam. My love is like red, red rose. If you like flowers, that's okay. I like flowers. All right, then we'll let that in. <laughs> now, off the record, gentlemen, can you recite a line which is uncomplimentary to love? This isn't part of the question. Just thought of it, just to make things even. A line uncomplimentary to love. Mr. Rathbone, uh, you have a line uncomplimentary to love? I'd hate to have you say it. Uh, Mr. The world go round. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're fired. Nice <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Information, please, announces a loss so far of $10. Now we'll see what we can do in the second half of the program. Oh, here's a dandy. This is for Mrs. F.J. Jansen of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going to depart from our usual formula in this one. We want you as a quartet, I am now speaking of you as a quartet, gentlemen, <laughs> to sing the first line from the chorus of the following familiar songs. Now, there are going to be uh, three or four of them. You must all be in harmony in at least three of the songs, three out of four. Now, if you are not in harmony, you're going to lose $5. Now, I am not a judge of harmony, because I've been reading books all my life, and so I'm tone deaf, which may be a good thing, as a matter of fact. I'm going to ask Mr. Milton Cross to act as judge. And the first uh, workout for this quartet will be from Sweet Adeline. I will give you the signal. One, uh, uh, Just two. a moment, Mr. Yeah. Madden. May I interrupt? Oh, uh, sure. We should be given a chance to uh, place the voices, that is, to assign the parts. Go ahead, but now, do it quickly. Who is, who is a bass? Frank, you're the lowest. Oh, he's the bass as can be. Anybody a tenor? Jack, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kieran is the tenor. Are you a good lead, Mr. Rathbone? Uh, no, we need a lead. No. I'll take either the lead or the baritone. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. Will you take the baritone? Get the song. Can you sing baritone? All right. I'll be the lead. Adams is the bass tenor and baritone Mr. Rathbone. Very good. Sweet Adeline. Sweet Adeline. How is that, Mr. Cross? I'd like to hear a little more. Yes, of course, Mr. Cross, that's where I think you're making your big mistake, but go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Mr. Cross pitches these a bit high, being a tenor himself. Well, we're trying to be a little unfair. I like my Sweet Adeline that. in baritone key, especially after uh, a little while. Oh, do, you want, do you want to come back to Sweet Adeline, Mr. Spade? Uh, I'd oh. love to have it a little lower, and I think Mr. Rathbone might come in with that baritone. Yes, come in with that baritone. Uh, uh... His speaking voice is so beautiful. Yes, it is. It's very lovely. Very lovely. Sweet Adeline. Very good harmony. Well, I'll call that one bad. Now, you have to get uh, the next three. The next is Down by the Old Mill Stream. Now, do you want to start that, uh, Mr. Spaeth? Down by the Old Mill Stream. Down by the Old They gave out. Do you want more? Uh, how'd you like that, Mr. Cross? Okay. Thank you, Mr. Cross. Sounds just as bad to me, but Mr. Cross, that's all right. Third, Old Black Joe. Oh. 
All right, Todd. All right, one more. One more. I never thought this would turn out so well. Uh, good night, ladies. Now, you have to get this quite correct. These are all pitched too high, Mr. Adam. Let's have that a little lower, please. Let's That's have too a low high for Adam. Adam's Adam is taking the lead low, this time. Low. <laughs> he can't sing bass. Once more now, then. Adam, Adam's is an alto. He's been an alto all his life. Take the lead, Frank. Here we go. Good night, ladies. Go ahead. Good night, ladies. Very good. Go ahead. Good night, ladies. I think he spoiled it. <laughs> All right, Mr. Clark. Three out of four. Very good. Now, gentlemen, you go home and practice on Sweet Adeline this evening. As a professional uh, hater of opera, gentlemen, I'm happy to read the following question from Mr. M.C. Fuller of Brooklyn, New York. He wants to know how the following operatic heroines committed suicide. And there are five of them. Not half enough, in my opinion. Uh, one. Uh, Brunhilde from the Getademerum. Brunhilde. Uh, Mr. Spade. Brunhilde rode her horse into the River Rhine. Uh, was it the river? I thought it was the flame, not fire. Well, into the funeral pyre, which, flame, was, not, which uh, was, uh, enveloped by the River Rhine, and therefore it was a combination uh, of fire yeah. and water, than which there are no two surer ways of committing suicide. <laughs> Can I count on that? All right, <laughs> Positively. Now, the next one, uh, is from, uh, sounds like a labor union. It says here, CIO, CIO, San, from Madam Butterfly. Oh, must be Chocho San. Chocho San, from Madam Butterfly, Mr. Spade. Chocho San committed suicide by the Harakiri method. Oh, uh, what is that? Stabbing herself. Very pretty. A knife. Yes, very nice. Uh, three, Aida. Aida? Any of you other gentlemen experts on suicide besides Mr. Spaeth? <laughs> Mr. Spaeth? Morbid, Mr. Spaeth. Aida committed suicide by joining her lover in the living tomb. Oh, that's very nice, too. I like that. <laughs> and, nice uh, thought. And four, Senta from the Flying Dutchman. Senta? That's S-E-N-T-A, Mr. Spaeth? Senta, as I remembered, threw herself into the sea. Yes, that's very nice, too. And uh, five, uh, Tosca. This gets more and more cheerful. Mr. Rathbun. Threw herself over a battlement. Yes, uh, after her lover's execution. Very good. Opera seems to have a bad effect on people, Mr. Spade. Uh, it always has. Very high mortality. Yes. The next question. This is from Mrs. S.K. Butterworth of Douglaston, New York. Give five musical terms which can also be applied to baseball. Five musical terms which can also be applied to baseball. Now, that ought to get everybody in. Five of them. Uh, Mr. Spade was the first one with his hand up. The first would be bass. Yes. The first would be bass. I suppose that's very good. Uh, next, have another. Mr. Kieran. The second would be pitch. Pitch is okay. Let's have another. Uh, Mr. Spade. <clears throat> the third would be run. A run? Yes, a run. Very good. That's three. I think I'm going to ask you to give a seven. Uh, can think of another? Mr. Spade? Uh, the word plate is used for pianos. That I don't know. What is it in a piano? Uh, the, the plate is the, the, the metal piece at the bottom. There's a metal plate. Very good. You play piano yourself. It is also, you? The plate, word plate is also used of phonograph records. Yes, that's plate right. Plate or platter. Yes, very good. Yeah, platter would be a baseball term, And the home, term, home plate is also known as the platter. Yes, I play a very nice game of baseball. On the piano. Yeah. <laughs> On the uh, piano. That, uh, <laughs> that's four. Uh, let's have a couple more. I can think of a musical... Uh, I think there's a pianist who is also in baseball. Spalding would be one. Isn't there a pianist yes. named Spalding? No, violinist. Oh, violinist, yes. And he but, sells uh, baseball. 
Mr. Spain. You could use the word stick. The stick of a of a conductor or of a drummer. Yes, or, or baton, like a high baton average. High baton average? <laughs> Uh, yes, Mr. Adam. A catch. A catch? Mm-hmm. Is that a musical term? Yes, sir. All right, all right, all right. Uh, can I give any others? Sure. Pretty good. Uh, Mr. Rathbone, did you no, have one? I was asking what a uh, catch was in... Uh, in baseball? In song. Oh, in the song. Well, they seem to know. It's an old fa- old English type of song. Sung, oh, that's right. Like, is it like several, a round? Like a round like or a, a round. glee. It's of that type. It's, it's, that mentioned, uh, it's mentioned in... Uh, Shakespeare. Twelfth Night. <laughs> uh, what line? Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. It was only the 11th, Jack. The well, I can't whiskey. think of any other. Oh, a battery might be one, might it not? A, a battery true, in, a, in, yes. a, in an orchestra. Well, that, we've got seven out of five. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, from Carl K. Bumberger, I don't know whether we'll have time to do this. Let's see if we can complete the following limerick. There was a young lady named Maud who was a contemptible fraud. She never was able to eat at the table. But out in the pantry, oh, Lord. Very good. <laughs> Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for tonight. Information, please, seems to have lost only $10. They did very well. Next week, we'll have Mr. Adams back with us, and together with Mr. John Kieran. And our guests of honor will be two in number, William Bonell, motion picture editor of the World Telegram, and that distinguished publicist, journalist, and radio commentator, whose opinions are eagerly noted by millions of Americans, Miss Dorothy Thompson. And now, Mr. Cross, will you take the mic and remind our audience of the rules once more? Information, please, thanks to you, ladies and gentlemen, and asks you to come again. Thank you, Mr. Fadiman. We meet again next week at 8.30 for another battle of the public versus the experts. Please send us questions, any number of them, with the correct answers. And don't get worried if our editorial staff changes or edits your questions slightly. Remember, $2 per question used, $5 more if the board flaps on it. All questions become the property of Information, Please, and send them to Information, Please, National Broadcasting Company, Radio City, New York. (laughs) Until next Tuesday evening at 8.30, we bid you all good night. This is the National Broadcasting Company, RCA Building, Radio City, New York. Basil Rathbone was a guest panelist, a rather quiet one as it turned out, in that broadcast of information, please, from September 27, 1938. He did well with the Shakespearean questions, not surprisingly, but he may have been distracted by events in Europe. Just three days after that broadcast, Neville Chamberlain would give his German appeasement speech, that famous or notorious speech with the words, I give you peace in our time. He could have said, I give you appeasement in our time, as it turned out. Sometimes Clifton Fadiman became a panelist on the show, leaving the hosting position to a guest. For example, presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie, for one. Dragnet is next, here on Skywave Audio Theater. Before he was TV's Perry Mason and before he was Lee Quince, captain of cavalry at Fort Laramie, Canadian actor Raymond Burr was Joe Friday's boss, Ed Backstrand, on Dragnet. Friday's partner was Ben Romero, voiced by Barton Yarborough. And in the early episodes, you'll hear Sam Edwards, who parlayed his Georgia accent into Western characters mostly, 
Dragnet sometimes drifted into small talk for the sake of realism, but there is none of that in the episode at hand. It comes from early in the run, from September 24, 1949. This is Jack Webb as Joe Friday in Dragnet. Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide. A mad killer is loose in the city. In every instance, he leaves the murder weapon behind. There are no fingerprints, no clues to the killer's identity. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 3rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was off duty reporting back in on an emergency call. It was 3.57 a.m. when I got to the basement of the city hall. The carpool. Let's go, Friday. Sorry to call you back in. Couldn't be helped. All right, Ben. Okay, Skipper. What's up, Ed? Double murder. When? I don't know. Found out about it oh, 40 minutes ago. Got any ideas? Roughly same M.O. Was that 6413 Norwich, Skipper? No, 6430. What do you mean, the same M.O.? I'm the same guy. Brickbat killer. How many does this make? Counting tonight, four. We got anything at all? Uh, smudged fingerprint we can't even classify. Sounds like a smart operator. Well, we gotta get him. If we have to shake down the city from one end to the other. Big job, Skipper. Big killer. At 4.26 a.m., we pulled up in front of 6430 Norwich Drive, a small group of bungalow apartments facing on an oval-shaped garden court. Two uniformed officers were stationed at the door to the apartment. Hi, Chief. Hi, fellas. We went inside. Welberg from Homicide was waiting for us. This way. In here. Well, there they are. Yeah. Mother, daughter. Joe, on the floor beside the bed. Yeah, a red brick. Miss Hafters, we know how you must feel about all this, but would you please try to answer a few more questions for us? Yes. All right. Oh, Margaret. Miss Hafters, how long had you known Mrs. Diaz and her daughter? Nine years. This November, they moved next door. I remember it so well. 
We got along right from the start. And as far as you know, the only close friends mother and daughter had live right here in the apartment court? Yes. Margaret was a pretty girl, but she was no chaser, no boyfriends. Very close to her mother. The two of them very close. Did they keep any amount of valuables in the apartment? Money, jewelry, things like that? Oh, no. Mrs. Diaz and Margaret didn't have much, you know. Very modest income. They both worked. And you can think of no good reason. Oh, no, no. Oh, poor Margaret. Poor Mrs. Diaz. Lying in there. Shock. It's a terrible shock. Wellberg. Yeah, Sergeant. Would you show Mrs. Hafters back to her apartment? Sure, Sergeant. Thank you, Mrs. Hafters. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Oh, Mark. Oh, Mr. Well, Joe, let's check with Ed. He's back in the bedroom. You get anything from the neighbors? The usual, Ed. No jealous boyfriends, ex-husbands, nothing like that. Boys find any evidence yet, Skipper? I'm still working on it. You got any theories? Well, we know the killings were all done by the same guy. Mm -hmm. Cuts the same pattern out of the window screen. Cuts the same pattern with a glass cutter out of the window. Reaches in and flips the locks. All right, where's that leave us? And before he gets inside, he makes sure there are only women in the house. That means he probably watches the house for a few days. Yeah. Once he gets inside, he wants only one thing, to kill. He's never taken any valuables. As far as we can tell, he's never searched for any. What kind of a man works like that? I think the guy's kill crazy. Hey, fellas. Yes, Donner? Here's a break. Two fair prints. One thumb, one forefinger. What'd you get, Pete? Only got nine points. Not enough to go into court, but enough to make him. We'll know him when we get him. Yeah. Found the prints on the lens of the old lady's eyeglasses. Probably knocked him off the night table when he went after her. And when he was done, he put him back on the table. Yeah. Had blood on his hands, see? Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Why would he go to the trouble of picking up the woman's glasses after he killed her? We'll ask him when we find him. <laughs> I have something for you. We can use it, Lee. Hold it just a minute. Yeah. Crime lab, Jones. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'll tell him. Right, Ed. Backstrand. If you're through checking the victim's clothes by 8 o'clock, you can knock off for sleep until noon. What if we're not through? Take it up with the chaplain. Here's what I wanted to show you. Over here. A couple of casts. Bare footprints. That's right. Those from the Diaz place? Found them outside the dining room window in the flower bed. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Good cast. Size nine. Ten. Uh, missing toe there, huh? Left foot, first toe. That's lucky. Well, then the guy took his shoes off before he went in that house. That's the way it looks. You leave any other prints, Lee? Three, with the shoes on. Here they are, here. Yeah. How would you say the guy is built, Lee? Oh, from the impression, pretty heavy man. There's no full length of stride, or I might give you an idea of his height. How about the bricks, Lee? Here they are, all three of them. Used this one in the first murder, this one in the second, this one last night. Leaves them around like calling cards, and there's no way to check them. You'll never get a fingerprint off a common red brick like this, Ben. Surface is too rough. Well, we got an idea of his weight. We know that the first toe's missing from his left foot. That's something. The one we had yesterday. We can check that missing toe in the amputation file, Joe. Yeah. Well, we better get back. Pete ought to have those prints ready, too. Thanks a lot, Lee. Okay, fellas. Say, they post the bodies yet? Yeah, they're doing it now. Same as the first two. The brain? Concussion, hemorrhage. They didn't have a chance. Hold it a minute. Crime lab, Jones. 
Sure, just a minute. Either one of you fellas. I'll get it, Joe. Okay. Here, Romero. Yeah. Good, we'll be right over. They got a make on those two fingerprints. Okay, Joe. Single print file. Made him on the index finger. Let me see, Pete. Uh-huh. Take a look, Ben. Yeah. Doesn't look like a killer, does he, Joe? Kind of nice looking. That's right, Pete. They said the same thing about John Dillinger. The name at the top of the make sheet read Carlos Richard Monterey. Male, Caucasian, age 19, height 5 feet 11 inches, weight 165 pounds, dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. Last known address... 1663 Naples Street, Los Angeles. Previous arrest, one, auto theft, February 8th, 1936. That was all. Ben and I had been expecting more. The information on the mama sheet for Monterey was 13 years old. So was the picture. So was the description. So was the address. In 13 years, a man can change in a thousand ways. So can his habits, his appearance, his address. In 13 years, everything can change except two things. A man's fingerprints and a physical deformity. (laughs) Missing toe on left foot. Carlos Richard Monterey. Here it is, Joe. 1663 Naples. Yeah, come on. Somebody's coming. Mm-hmm. Yes? What is it? We're police officers. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, yes. Uh, would you like to come in? Thank you, ma'am. Yes? Would you mind telling us your name? Monterey. Isabel Monterey. What is it you want? You're married? Yes. My husband is Francisco Monterey. Would you explain why you are here? We thought you might be able to help us. We're looking for a man named Carlos Monterey. I don't understand you. We're looking for a man. We'd like to talk to him. Do you know where he is? Yes. Carlos is dead seven years ago. He's dead, my husband told me. And does your husband know Carlos, or did he know him? He was his brother. What about your husband's parents, Miss Monterey? Where are they? They're both dead. Sometime now. Have you ever met Carlos? No, never. I've only heard of him. What have you heard of him, Miss Monterey? Do not ask me. This is important, very important. Francisco would not like it if, if I told you. It's important, Miss Monterey, believe us. Carlos, he's sick. His mind. For eight years, Francisco has not seen him, not heard from him. He thinks he's dead. But he only thinks so, Miss Monterey. No one has told him his brother's dead. He just thinks so. What else is there to think? Where's your husband now? At his work, the store. Rivera Street near Maine. Grocery. Monterey Cut Road Grocery. Here's your change. Thank you, Mrs. Myers. Now, look, officers, you know how it is. You don't like to let these things get out. That's why I trust you. You can trust us, Mr. Monterey. We just want to check on a few things. Oh, Fine. Always glad to help out if I can. Well, can you tell us if your brother was ever in a mental institution in his life? Oh, I know there was nothing wrong. 1923. Got a little bad, so Mom and Dad had to put him away for a while, just till he calmed down. I remember the day. 
Sometimes, dumb, stupid kid, what he know? Standing there by himself in the train, crying. The public nurse, stupid way he cry, what do you do? I cried too. I was only 10, Sergeant. I, I saw him go. He was alone. Later on, Mr. Monterey, your brother was released from the state institution. Yeah, he was 16. And then he started running around, playing tough, carried a gun, lived by himself. He never came around. He dropped from sight about 1938. You haven't heard from him since then? Nothing. Never seen him. Do you know of anybody who might have seen him? Ooh, there was a girl he had. Uh, Anita something. On Soteo Street. Uh, Anita Martin, yeah, that's it. Soteo Street. Maybe she's seen him. Ask her. Maybe she's seen him. Carlos? Carlos Monterey? Uh, not in a year. Last March he was in. When I was working at the Peacock, down on South Main. He came in, we talked for a while. That was all. And you haven't seen Carlos for the past two months or so? I tell you, no. Has he written to you? Has he phoned you? Mm. Once, three weeks ago, he phoned. Here. He left a message with my girlfriend. But he didn't call back again. Now, that's it. That's all I know. Thank you, Miss Martin. Here's our card. If he does call, well, you'll let us know. Yeah, I'll let you know. You like Carlos. Is that it, Anita? Like him? No, I didn't like him. He was funny. But he was nice. You know, I pitied him. Why did you pity him, Miss Martin? Well, he was a good fellow who was strange. He could smile, you know. He had a nice smile, but you could tell he was never laughing. There was something in his mind. Something. Oh, I don't know. At least a year, closer to two, I haven't seen Carlos. No letters, not a card, nothing. He was in the East the last time I heard. When was that? A year ago, January, I was in here. He sent me a calendar. Sometimes he could get along fine, very well. Other times, terrible. He couldn't keep him down. How'd he manage to stay out of jail that way, Vicente? I don't know. Sometimes he should have been in jail five times over. And you say you don't know of anybody who might have a recent picture of Carlos, a snapshot? No. No, no one I can think of. Okay, Vincent, here's our card. If you do think of somebody, let us know, will you? It'll help. Sure, glad to. If I hear of anybody. What kind of a day is it outside? Hot? Hot. By five o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I were certain of one thing. Carlos Monterey was in the city of Los Angeles, somewhere. We drove back to the office and told Ed Backstrand about our interviews with Monterey's relatives and his friends. Inquiries and requests for further identification and information on him were immediately relayed to the state mental institutions. The 13-year-old picture of Monterey taken from the files was copied and distributed with a note of caution as to the age of the photograph. An APB was sent out. Stakeouts were placed at the home of Monterey's brother, at the brother's store, and at the apartment of Anita Martin. A special detail of 300 men was ordered to join the dragnet already in operation. The details at the airport and the bus terminals were alerted, as well as the details at the Union Depot and the main post office. By 6 o'clock that night, almost 1,000 men were actively working at the job of tracking down Carlos Monterey. At 6.30 p.m., Ben and I drew a four-hour relief period. We drove out to Ben's place, and his wife fixed us some dinner. At 10.30 that night, we reported into the office, picked up Ed Backstrand, and we drove out to join the manhunt. Unit 32R on the corner of South Flower and Loomis, the 390W, KMA 367. 
operation until five o'clock that morning. Ben and I took turns driving. Actually, the tremendous job of scouring 500 square miles of city for one man was only beginning. Unless there was an unexpected break, the search for Carlos Monterey could wear on for weeks. It did. Night after night, the manhunt went on, and day after day, there was no break. Sixteen days later, on a Sunday night, I went to bed early. I read a while, and then I turned off the lamp and went to sleep. Friday talking. Sorry, Joe. Get in here as fast as you can. Hmm? What's the matter? That girl Monterey knew. The one you talked to? Yeah. She left her apartment, went to her girlfriend's. Yeah? She's dead. There it is. Ordinary red brick. Found it by the body. How long has she been dead, Skipper? Well, she was seen alive about an hour and a half ago. Got three bare footprints, good length of stride... Found them down in the lot beside the house. What do they look like? Same guy. First toe missing from the left foot. The same weight impression. Should be about five foot eleven. That checks out with what you got, doesn't it? All right, so it's the same guy. What about those shoes we found, Lee? Yeah, they correspond. They were impregnated with foreign matter. What'd you find? Particles of lettuce leaf, dry onion skin, traces of red cabbage. Maybe a vegetable counter. Maybe. What about the city wholesale market down on Front Street? What about any market in Los Angeles? No, Lee, that wholesale market is big enough to hide anybody. Hundreds of transients work in there. Some of them even sleep there. For a guy like Monterey, it'd be perfect. That's a fair guess. Check it when it opens. They open at 2 a.m. 2.30 now. All right, get back to the office and pick up as many extra men as you need. Get down there right away. Okay, Ed. Now, you know he's a rough one, so watch it. On Monday, June 23rd, at two minutes past 3 a.m., we pulled up at the city wholesale produce market. With the exception of 54 police officers in plain clothes who mingled with the buyers and sellers, business went along as usual. The market itself covered almost three square blocks in the lower part of the downtown area. It was divided off into hundreds of individual stalls by flimsy wooden partitions. To make the search even tougher, the place was crowded. For the first 45 minutes, we had the men circulate at random through the crowd on the chance that one of them might spot Carlos Monterey from the 13-year-old picture. It didn't happen. After that, we started a systematic canvas. We talked to the customers. We talked to the managers of the different booths. We gave them Monterey's description. We showed them his picture. Nobody recognized him. We checked the employment records one by one. Not a sign. Sorry, Sergeant. I'd like to help. I've never seen the guy. Okay, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. We sure pick the sweet jobs, don't we? Oh, yeah. We could spend a year at this. Oh, Sergeant. Sergeant Friday. Yeah, Kamansky. Did you find something? The guy at the booth over there against the far wall. Thinks he might have hired Monterey a couple of days ago. Come on, Ben. Where? Over there, Sergeant. You showing Monterey's picture? Yeah, he thinks it might be him. Mr. Fresnetti, this is Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Yes, I told you, boy, Sergeant. This fellow, Carlos, I hired him to help uh, last Thursday. Big rush for me now, so I hired him. You sure he's the man? In the picture? I think so. A little older, maybe. Oh, but I know faces. He's the man. You, you're looking for him? You say you hired this man last Thursday. That's right. It's a big rush for me now in the morning. I, I hire him Thursday. He worked uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But he don't show up this morning, so I got no use. Too many men to pick from. 
He don't show up, I let him go. What kind of work did he do for you? Same as he did for Schiller down there. Heavy work. Uh, moving the stores, they're cleaning up. What kind of produce does Schiller handle, Mr. Franzinetti? Fancy, very fancy vegetables. Uh, choice. Uh, new potatoes, uh, expensive red onions. Uh, Schiller sells to the big hotels. Does Schiller handle brown onions, Mr. Franzinetti? Oh, only the best. Big dealer that Schiller sells it to the big hotels. How long has this Carlos been working around the market? Oh, I don't know. Is it just like the rest? First he worked for me, then uh, Largo Massini, then a Schiller. Hey, why are you looking so hard for him? He, he stole somebody? He murdered somebody. Him? Mamma mia, murder. Do you have any idea where Carlos lives? Oh, me? No, no. And if he comes back here, I tell him to get out. I got nothing to do with this trouble. No, you'll tell him nothing, Mr. Presnetti. Here's our card. If you see Monterey again, call us. Say nothing to him. Oh, sure, sure. I'd ring him. Uh, Joe, call the chief at the office, will you? Message just came in. Thanks, Al. Come on, Ben. Yeah, there's a phone booth. See? No, I don't. Where? Straight ahead. Little to the left. Oh, yeah. You got a nickel? Mm, let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you are. Thanks. I'll see what Ed wants. Two five one one. Two five one one. Chief of detectives always handling. Hi, Mike. Ed there. Ed, take it on extension two, will you? Baxter in talking. Friday, Ed. Move fast on this one, Joe. What's up? Main post office. Carlos Monterey picked up a letter there less than five minutes ago. Come on, Ben. There's Ed over there with Welberg. Yeah. Traffic short jammed up around here. Hi, Ed. Friday, Romeo. You all set, Wilberg? All set, Chief. Spring Street to San Pedro. Sunset the first. Got it covered. Good. What's the story? Post office detail tipped us off. Five minutes after eight, a man answering Carlos Monterey's description picked up a letter at the general delivery window. That was 16 minutes ago. Who spotted him? Sam Lane. He got a look at him just as he was leaving the window. Called to him to stop, but Monterey ran. Lane called me, and we threw a net over the area for six blocks around. And Monterey's still somewhere inside this area? I don't know how I could have gotten out. What's next? Well, I'll give him an hour to break for it. After that, we start a house-to-house search of the whole area. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic for identification. You're going to jam up the depot traffic. That's cheaper than murder, Romero. Get going. The first hour, we counted off in five-minute segments. Like Backstrand, we felt close enough to Monterey to touch him. But he still wasn't there. The north and south ends of the blockade started to move in, slowly, searching every store, every house, every conceivable place where a man might hide out. In the meantime, Ben and I worked the Spring Street side of the blockade, watching the faces of the pedestrians as they came through, one by one, examining all vehicles and their drivers. The morning wore on, the sun came out, and it started to get warm. By 11 o'clock that morning, Monterey still had not been found. The temperature was 93 in Los Angeles. Was still climbing. The search went on. At 10 minutes past 2 p.m., Backstrand made the rounds. How's it look, Skipper? Not good. Going slow. How much longer you figure? Uh, I don't know. It'll go to after dark, that's sure. District down here is like a rat's nest. Yeah. Nothing? Nothing. But he's someplace inside this blockade. He's gotta be. Any chance of getting relief for the men in our squad? Some of them been working straight through since yesterday. Uh, I'll see. Check with me around five this afternoon. Thank you, Skipper. Keep a sharp lookout. One slip. That's all it takes. The search went on. At three o'clock that afternoon, the temperature was 95. We sweltered and we waited. 
At 3.45, Backstrand sent a squad of men into the Union Depot to search it from top to bottom. There was one false alarm when one of the men thought he saw Monterey slipping out a side door into a taxi. He turned out to be a train conductor. At 25 minutes past four, Backstrand passed along the order to our detail to start moving in, house by house. It was a tedious job, and it went slow. The men were tired. At 5.30, the relief squad showed up. Ben and I stayed on. After another two hours of house-to-house searching, the trap was narrowed down to a three-square-block area, a single block wide and three blocks long. It started to get dark. Backstrand ordered out batteries of floodlights. By 8 p.m., the cordon closed in around the last two square blocks. Line for all sets, Skipper. Ready to move. Good. What do you think? Well, we'll know pretty soon, one way or the other. Frank, keep that traffic moving. All right, you two, get going. See you later, Skipper. Joe, let's take a look in here. Okay. Sure is an old building. Yeah. Where'd Kamansky go? I don't know. He's here a minute ago. Oh, wait. There's his flashlight. It's down at the end of the corridor there. He's signaling. Yeah, come on. Kamansky? Yes. Down below, Sergeant, in the basement. Come on. Monterey? He's been there, I think. Yeah, this way. Where? Over here. Now, watch the step. The light's bad. Here he is. Says he's the janitor. Oh, my head. He's been slugged. All right, come on. How'd it happen? Can you tell us? Yeah, a man, a big man hit me. I came down to empty the baskets. He hit me and ran. Ran over to the new building. The new building? Is that the one next door? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Nobody's come out of this building for the past half hour. Every door in the place is guarded. No, no, not the doors. He went through the tunnel. I saw him. Over there's the tunnel. I'll take a look, Joe. Mm. Yeah, the tunnel. Connects the two basements. Same company, old building, new building. The tunnel connects the basements. Joe, come on. Yeah. Kamansky, get out the back strand. Tell him what's happened. Right, Sergeant. And call an ambulance. Right. All right, Ben. Through the tunnel. Watch where you're going. The light's bad. Yeah, it is. That a door up ahead there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Good. There's a stairway. Come on. Watch the doors. Joe, the elevators. They're both on the third floor. Let's head for the stairs. Ben, come on. One more floor. Yeah, right. Come on, hurry. Yeah. Look, top of the stairs. There he goes. All right, hold it, you. Stuck in the elevator. Joey's going down. Well, we'll never make it on the stairs. Joe, look. This other elevator, the control lever's bent. Let's try it anyway. Yeah. All right, kick the control lever. Kick it, Ben. Good. All right, Ben, knock the lever back. Come on, quick. Yeah. What's the matter? No, it's jammed. We're going fast. All right, let's kick it. Here. There, that does it. Can you reach the door control? Wait just a minute. I'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's still in the building. Both elevators are here now. Yeah. Down the hall, Ben. The office on the left, I think. Yeah. Okay, here we are. All right, keep clear of the door. All right, Monterey, put on that gun and come on out. I'll kill you! I'll kill all of you! All of you! Okay, Joe, let's take it. Watch it, Ben. He's throwing everything he can get his hands on. I'll kill you! Come on! Come on! I'll kill you! Get away! I'll kill all of you! All right, Monterey. Come on, you! Everywhere you! Okay, Ben, take him. Hmm. 
Nice looking guy. Clean cut. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? What's that? My wife would say he doesn't look like a killer, does he? What's a killer supposed to look like? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Carlos Monterey was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be sane. He was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 17th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, acting chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to motorcycle patrolman John Kramer of the El Paso, Texas Sheriff's Department, who on the afternoon of April 26, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. You're tuned for the stars on NBC. Joe Friday and a great number of cohorts at the LAPD in their unstinting pursuit of the Brickbat Slayer. That was Dragnet from September 24th, 1949, the story of your police force in action. As the series went on over the years, it became even more detailed in its recreation of true crimes. Rocky Jordan is going to get a strange bequest from a very unlikely source next here on Skywave Audio Theater. The gentleman from the Pyramid Insurance Company has come a long way from Dodge City, but that's how versatile Parley Bear was. He could play Chester to William Conrad's Matt Dillon, or one of the shady characters who crosses the threshold of the Cafe Tambourine in Cairo, the realm of Rocky Jordan. The question is... Who is Adelaide Foss? And once you've answered that, why has she left a big gift to Rocky Jordan? We'll see if we find out in this story called Memento from Adelaide. It's Rocky Jordan from September 22, 1949. Buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan, brought to you today by Del Monte Tomato Products. Not far from the mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. The Cafe Tambourine. Crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan and this week's story, Memento from Adelaide.
I first saw them standing on the sidewalk outside my tambourine. Two men. One tall and thin with a puckered mouth that looked like it had been eating sour apples. The other short and fat, fidgeting with a briefcase and pointing to the numbers that marked the address of my cafe. They stood outside for a moment, jabbering to each other. Then I guess they made up their minds because they came into my place. The fat one in the lead. A few seconds later, the fat one opened the conversation. You, sir, your name, sir, is... Rocky Jordan. As expected. My card, sir. Jay Lampo of the PIC, the Pyramid Insurance Company, Home Offices, Alexandria. Huh? Insurance of all sorts, fire, theft, life, health, group annuities, fidelity, and surety bonds, etc. My associate here... My card, H. Manchek, similarly of the PIC, agent for the Cairo District. We are in business for your protection. Well, thanks a lot, fellas. I appreciate that, but I'm not in the market for any insurance. My briefcase. Mm. Uh, uh, now the papers. Shall I interrogate, or do you wish to man-check? Whichever you prefer. Look, why don't you start, Lampo, and man-check and fill in the gaps? Huh? But make it fast. i got a lot to do. We all have, Mr. Jordan. I shall proceed. You could, if requested, secure affidavits from reliable persons attesting you are Rocky Jordan, as you say, and no other. I could. Since I am no other, there must be a point to all this. The Rocky Jordan we have in mind owned an establishment called the Café Tambourine, even as this café is called. Now, this cafe previously had been located in two other large world cities. Name the cities. Istanbul and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Am I warm? This Rocky Jordan we have in mind is not native to Egypt. He is an immigrant from another country. Name the country. How about the United States? In what city of this same United States was this Rocky Jordan born? Uh, I'll try St. Louis. Mr. Lampo, this is indeed the man. Our exhaustive investigations the last few weeks prove it to me. And to me. Mr. Jordan, I shall leave these release from claim papers with you. After you have studied them to your complete satisfaction, please to sign them. And then? H. Manchak shall return this evening to pick up the signed papers and deliver to you a check. Payment in full... $40,000. $40,000 in American money, Mr. Jordan. PIC shall then be relieved of its obligation to you. Well, $40,000 is a nice obligation, fellas, but... The I Pyramid don't... Insurance Company prefers always to pay claims against it as rapidly as possible. In this case, there was unavoidable delay because you presented no formal claim. Since, however, you are beneficiary, the money is rightfully yours. Look, fellas, I don't like to be a wet blanket, but there must be some mistake. There is no mistake, Mr. Jordan, rest assured. We have investigated thoroughly. PIC owes you $40,000. Ever since the death a year ago of Mrs. Adelaide Foss Jordan, your wife. Lampo and Manchek walked out of the tambourine and left me standing there with my mouth open. I figured they were phonies, a couple of loonies working Cairo for laughs. But the insurance papers in my hand look real enough. So I put in a quick call to the Cairo office of the Pyramid Insurance Company to check. It turned out that Lampo and Manchek did work there, but I still wasn't convinced. So I put in a call to Captain Sabaya, Cairo police, to have a few words with him. Captain Sabaya speaking. Uh, Sam, this Rocky. Good afternoon, Jordan. If you have a moment, I'd like to ask you something. Mm -hmm. Proceed. What do you know about the Pyramid Insurance Company? Why do you ask? Oh, curiosity, Sam. I uh, want to know if they're reliable. Absolutely. I have even taken out a policy with them myself. Ah, uh, all right. Thanks, Sam. Oh, uh, Sam. Yes? Does the name Adelaide Foss mean anything to you? Adelaide Foss? Ah. Uh, no, no, it doesn't. 
Just not. All right. Thanks, Sam. See you later. Pyramid Insurance Company was legit, all right. Jay Lampo and H. Mancheck worked for it. If they said I had $40,000 coming, I had. And if they said I had a wife, I guess I had that too. Even though the name Adelaide Foss meant nothing to me. Adelaide Foss. Things began to stir in my mind. I moved out of my office over to the bar to have a talk with my bartender, Chris. Oh, Chris. Wait a minute, will you? Sure. What is it, Rock? What do you know about the name Adelaide Foss? Adelaide? Adelaide Foss. Well, you know her, Rock. She used to work here. Work here? Yeah, about a year ago. Just for a couple of days. Waited on tables, and then she quit. Oh, yeah. I remember now. Sort of a small, skinny girl with a lot on her mind. How do you remember so well? I dated her a couple of times. Sometimes you don't forget the girls you date. You know what happened to her? She died. Not long after she left here. How? Accident. She was hit by a car. Why do you bring it up, Rock? Oh, I just had a visit from a couple of insurance representatives. Seems she had an insurance policy. Insurance policy? Yeah, with me as beneficiary. You see, she's got it marked that I'm her husband. Why would she do a thing like that, Chris? I don't know, Rock. Seems a little funny, doesn't it? day my barely no dies, a year goes by, her life insurance policy turns up, and I'm $40,000 richer. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, all right. I'd sort of like to know why. Any ideas where I could look for some answers? Why don't you leave it alone, Rock? What do you mean? Well, she's dead. Let it rest. What do you suggest I do? Just sign these papers and collect the $40,000? Well, it's all legit, isn't it? Well, seems to be. Look, let it lay, Rock. I think it'd be better that way all the way around. Sign the papers, collect the money. It's coming to you. Then forget the whole thing. Well, maybe you're right, Chris. Maybe I'll just do that. That all, Rocky? Yeah. Well, I'll get back to these glasses then. Oh, uh, Rocky, I've got a doctor appointment this afternoon. Only time he could take me. You mind if I knock off for an hour? No, no not at all. Oh, thanks. I'll leave in a few minutes, but I'll be back before the evening rush. <laughs> Well, it didn't take a mind reader to figure that Chris knew more than he was saying. So when he left a few minutes later, I tailed him. First, he went to the Pyramid Insurance Company. Then he caught a cab and rode down to the Elmox Bazaar in Old Cairo. He wound his way through it and went in a tent under a crooked sign that said, Astrology, Prince Rico, the Divine. I waited up the street in front of a coffee and tobacco shop. The lady who ran it must have taken a correspondence course in high-pressure selling. The Fendi wishes to purchase from my fine shop fine articles of coffee and tobacco. No, the best selection in all Egypt. Observe the fine coffee from Java and Brazil. Very nice. Observe the unexcelled selection of the aromatic She kept up her jabber Java. and every once in a while tugged at my sleeve. But I kept my eye on the tent of Prince Rico the Divine. Later, Chris came out again and started to leave the bazaar. But he never made it. <laughs> Next thing I knew, Chris was rolling on the ground. There was a lot of reaction from the people in the crowded bazaar. Ah, let me through. Come on, come on, let me through. Do not push. Do not push, Effendi. I wish to see the happenings even as you. I saw it all. Yeah? I saw all that happened. This man had just stepped out of Prince Rico's tent. He started up the Sharia when all of a sudden... All right, let me get a look at him. He is a friend of yours, Effendi? Oh, too sad. The bullet seems to have entered the head. Uh, he's still alive. Call an ambulance, will you? Most certainly, Effendi. Then call Captain Sabaya, the Cairo police. Tell him what happened. I will, Effendi. I will do that most promptly. Rico! Which one of you is Prince Rico? Oh, sir, none of us is Prince Rico. No, indeed, these eyes of mine saw Prince Rico in his purple robe leave the bazaar. 
Fast, very fast, Effendi, with the speed of the falcon on the wing. Upon the word, Effendi, Prince Rico the Divine is truly gone. Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. The secret is out. Yes, friends, the secret is out. The secret of Del Monte catsup's marvelous flavor. Let me tell it, Larry. Del Monte catsup is made with pineapple vinegar. Pineapple vinegar. In fact, Del Monte has been using pineapple vinegar for some time now. That's the reason you like Del Monte catsup so much. Everybody does. Catsup experts say the finer the vinegar, the better the catsup flavor. And Del Monte catsup made with pineapple vinegar certainly proves their point. It isn't that you taste the vinegar. It's the way pineapple vinegar brings out the very best in the other ingredients. Coke's is all the full, rich flavor from those plump, handsome, vine-ripened tomatoes Del Monte uses. Yes, Pineapple vinegar gives Del Monte catsup flavor an extra lift. Lots more pep. And remember, it's made by Del Monte. No other catsup has it. So if you haven't already tried Del Monte catsup, you'll want to get some right away. Look for it at your grocer's. You'll be surprised at its price. For all its goodness, it's lower than many other quality brands. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, Memento from Adelaide. In a little while, the ambulance showed and Chris was carted off to a Cairo hospital. He was in pretty bad shape. A few minutes later, Captain Sabai and his men showed. The crowd was still milling about in the bazaar and it seemed that... They all wanted to get into the act. I saw it, Captain. All that happened. I saw even more than he. Question me. I request that Captain Sabaya question me about the happening. He will die, Captain. I wish to be questioned first so that my picture will be in the newspaper. Silence. Silence, all of you. Quiet. Now, all of you who claim to have pertinent facts shall be questioned in due time. Captain of the police, sir. Hmm? It would be most kind of you if you would allow the newspapers to say that the man was shot in front of my coffee and tobacco shop. Even though this was uh, not so, the publicity would be the most... Yes, later, wonderful. later, later. Uh, Come, Jordan, let us walk away from the crowd. You are the one I wish to question. Right, Sam. Someday, Jordan, I shall learn your secret. What secret's that? How you manage always to be in close proximity of serious trouble. <laughs> this is far enough. All right, Jordan, proceed with what you know of this. There's not much to tell, Sam. There's always much to tell in a case of violence. What were you and Chris doing here at the bazaar? Well, we weren't together. Chris came to talk to Prince Rico. Remember when I called you checking on the Pyramid Insurance Company? Yes. I also asked you if you knew anything about a girl named Adelaide Foss. Yes, I remember. Well, she died a year ago in an auto accident. Today, the Pyramid Insurance Company turned up with a life insurance policy for $40,000, with me as beneficiary. Continue. The well, strange thing about it, Sam, is that she had me marked down as her husband, and I barely knew her. When I mentioned it to Chris, he got worried and came over to have a conversation with Prince Rico. Continue. That's all there is. That's all there is indeed. Jordan, a man is shot on the streets of Cairo. A woman leaves a life insurance policy to a man she barely knows. 
The man who was shot is connected with both, with the dead woman and the man to whom she has left the money, and you say that's all there is. All right, check with Pyramid. Talk to Lampo and Mancheck. They're the ones that came to me with that screwy policy. I shall talk to Mr. Lampo and Mr. Mancheck and Prince Rico. If you can find him. Then I shall talk to Chris when he is well enough to speak. If he is well enough to speak. Well, at any rate, George, and I suggest you keep yourself available for further questioning. There is an atmosphere about this entire case that is completely bewildering. Well, it was evening when I left Sam, and I headed straight for the hospital to talk to Chris, but the doctor said no. I left my number, and he said he'd call me at the tambourine when Chris was in shape to have visitors. I left the hospital and started to call another cab when I caught a flash of purple robe coming toward the hospital. It figured to be Prince Rico, and I wanted some words with him. But that's when he saw me and started to run. I moved out after him. He started down a dark side street, but his robes didn't make it easy for running. Twenty-five or so paces later, I caught up with him and grabbed him by the back of the neck. Turned me with a skinny leg, but I held and yanked him toward me. A couple of seconds later, the prince and myself and a half a dozen yards of purple cloth were all entangled in the gutter. Unhand me! You're encouraging the anger of the prince. Uh, sure. But let me go! Yeah, maybe, after we have some talk. I have nothing to say to one such as you. Yeah, we'll see. Come on, now, on your feet. Oh. You have torn my rope. You have torn my illustrious garment. On your feet now. The star shall be angry. They shall avenge this ignoble treatment. This afternoon, my bartender went to see you. I do not even know what you're talking about. Uh, maybe you need a little memory refresher, huh? Do not strike me. Why was Chris shot? What did he come to see you about? What do you know about Adelaide Force? I don't say you don't know anything. But who said I did not know anything? I know all. Prince Rico the Divine knows everything. I read it in the stars. You know, Effendi, that the world is not round, as some say, but it's truly flat. That the sky is an inverted bowl, and the stars are the language of the infinite, telling man of his future. All right, tell me about the past, about Chris and Adelaide. Prince Rico the Divine could give ready answers, but, alas, my mouth is sealed. The stars forbid me to speak. You know, some people are liable to think you shot Chris. I can keep no one from thinking as he wishes. I bet a five-pound note would open your mouth. It would indeed. My mouth would open as large as you like, but no word would come out. Chris knew Adelaide Foss. Knew her well, I'd say. I think maybe they went together for a while. I bet you know about that. It is as I have said. I know everything. It cost a lot of money to take out a $40,000 insurance policy. Adelaide was a poor girl. Where'd she get the money? Hmm? Why'd she put me down as beneficiary? Mm. Right, Rico, come on. Where are you taking me? Consult the stars, buddy. They'll tell you. I grabbed Prince Rico the Divine by his phony royal neck and shoved him into a cab. Ten minutes later, I dumped him into the lap of Sergeant Greco and asked him to have Sam call me after he had a chance to question Rico. Then I went back to the tambourine and put on a call to the hospital. Chris was still unconscious. I sat out at a table and looked through the insurance papers that Lampo and Manchak had left for me to sign. A moment later, the door opened and H. Manchak walked in. Ah, good evening, Mr. Jordan, good evening. Ah, sit down, Mr. Manchak. Thank you, thank you indeed. Jay Lampo sends his respects. He had to go back to Alexandria. Huh? Ah, I see you have the insurance papers in front of you. Good. I have the check from Pyramid. If you will just give me those papers, I shall give you the check. I haven't uh, signed them yet. Are they not in order? Are they? Seem to be all right. Well, what are you waiting for? Oh, I don't know. But you understand, Mr. Jordan, I cannot give you the check until you sign. Uh-huh. My pen, Mr. Jordan. 
You still do not sign? Perhaps, Mr. Jordan, it would be wise if you and I retired to your private office where we may talk this out more fully. Sure, I'll go for that. Come on. There we are. All right, start talking. Mr. Jordan, it must be apparent to you by this time that there is more to this business than you are aware of, all of which makes it imperative that you sign these papers. I'm afraid you'll have to clear that up. Chris, your bartender, is a friend of yours? Yeah? You are aware that he and Adelaide Foss knew each other quite well? I heard some talk. But I would say that you are not aware of the fact that Adelaide Foss's death was not accidental. What are you getting at? I am simply stating a positive fact. Adelaide Foss's death was not accidental. Now, if suddenly the police get a suspicion of that fact and proceed on an investigation, they might learn that Chris was in love with the girl, but she was not in love with him. They might then wonder if he was not responsible for her death. Uh, Get to the point, Manchek. What are you after? This, Mr. Jordan, if you sign these papers. These are perfectly legal papers. Let me impress upon you. I then can turn over to you this check worth $40,000. Go on. Should you then return $20,000 to me personally, I promise to keep certain information pertaining to Adelaide Foss's death from the police. They consider it a closed issue. It will remain so. That makes a pretty sweet deal all the way around. Indeed. You make $20,000, I make $20,000. And Chris's secret remains hidden forever. Me taking that check, you make it sound like the thing to do. It is. My pen. Thanks. First, the insurance papers releasing Pyramid from claim. Excellent. Here is the check. Thank you. Now, your check to me for $20,000. Well, I don't have that much money in my checking account. Uh, you will. Please endorse your check from Pyramid. Mail it to your bank for deposit tonight. In the morning, I shall be at the bank to cash your check to me. you got it all figured out, haven't you? These many years of experience in the insurance business. Now, you will endorse the $40,000 check and then... Write me one for 20. I did as he said, wrote him a check, scribbled an endorsement on the one from Pyramid and sealed it in an envelope. Then Manchek walked me to the mailbox to be sure I dropped it in. After that, he left, but I knew that wasn't the last I was to see of H. Manchek. Before he came back, I had to move fast. The first thing I did was put in a call to Chris to see if he could talk. The doc still said no. Well, if Chris couldn't talk, his belongings could I caught a cab and went over to his apartment, started to look around. First the bureau drawers, then the closets, finally a small desk standing in the corner. When the bottom drawer failed to come open at a pull, I knew I had something, so I kicked it in. Inside, I found a framed picture of a very skinny, very unhappy girl, Adelaide Foss. Clipped to the back of the picture was a faded piece of yellow paper. It was a short note, but it told a lot of things. Right then and there, I knew I had all the answers to the whole rotten mess. The next morning, I was but ready for H. Manchek. He put in an appearance around 10.45, and he didn't seem too happy. Mr. Jordan. Oh, good morning, Mr. Manchek. This is a surprise. Mr. Jordan, I arrived at the bank this morning and attempted to cash the check for $20,000, which you made out in my favor. I was told there were insufficient funds in your account. Is that so? Would you please tell me how that was possible when I myself saw you deposit $40,000 by mail? I'm going to tell you a lot of things. 
I don't think you're going to like any of them. Mr. Jordan, are you suggesting that I call the police and tell them of Chris and Adelaide? There's the phone. Call. They thought not. Chris didn't kill Adelaide Manchek. Her death was not an accident, I assure you. No, but Chris didn't kill her, and I can prove it. But I can prove something else that's going to hit you a little closer. You had a pretty good scheme, Manchek. And it went something like this. A lonely girl, should we say, dies. You sit right down, write a $40,000 insurance policy for her, and predate it before her death. You send the policy and the premium payment to your home office. Everything's fine. You wait. A year goes by. Another premium payment is due. The company sends a bill to the girl. No answer. The letter comes back. But it's a big policy, so they investigate and find out the girl's dead. Now there's a claim against the company. Pyramid is a legit outfit, so they investigate some more. They find out I'm the beneficiary. Amfo comes down from Alexandria to pay off the claim. How am I doing? Proceed. After the claim is paid, you move in and try to shake me down for half the money. Uh, uh, Mr. Jordan, may I ask how you intend to prove this? By a piece of faded yellow paper I found in Chris's drawer. It explains why he didn't want me digging into Adelaide's accidental death. It explains how she died. And the handwriting will prove that it wasn't Adelaide Foss who took out the insurance policy at all. Because it's not her signature on the policy. And what, Mr. Jordan, is this miraculous piece of paper? A suicide note from Adelaide. I see. May I see this note? Oh, no. I do not believe that such a note exists. You'll be convinced. Sit down. You will not make that... I said sit down! That's better. Captain Sabaya speaking. Oh, Rocky, Sam. Come on over to the tambourine, will you? Hmm? There's someone here who wants to tell you how he tried to fleece the Pyramid Insurance Company. How he threw a bullet into Chris, and how he ended up sitting in my waste paper basket. Is that all he did, Jordan? Yeah, there are a few more things. Come on over. I'll tell you all about it. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. Friends, it isn't every day we can sit down to a tender, juicy steak. With most of us, that's just a -a once-in-a-while special treat. You homemakers know it's the everyday meals that count, the low-cost foods that come within the average family budget. Preparing such foods in new and interesting ways, giving them a hearty He-Man flavor is easy with Del Monte tomato sauce. It's been tested for flavor by a generation of good cooks. Why, it's almost as much of a staple with them as pepper and salt. For instance, Mrs. Blanche Clove of Los Angeles said, I use lots of plain meats in one-dish meals, lots of big vegetable casseroles, and I just wouldn't know how to make them without Del Monte tomato sauce. The flavor is just right for our taste. It makes any dish zesty and peppy and better-looking, too. Yes, Del Monte tomato sauce has been my standby ever since we came to California 24 years ago. Thank you, Mrs. Clove. Yes, it is easy to make budget dishes popular with Del Monte tomato sauce. Just pour it on and cook it in. Then notice how that rich spiced tomato flavor perks up those inexpensive foods. Watch your family enjoy every bite. Next time you go shopping, ask for Del Monte the original tomato sauce. Back now to Rocky Jordan.
Well, Sam came over and bundled up Mancheck. He was all used up, and it figured Sam wouldn't have much trouble making him talk. Sam took him down to the lockup, and I said I'd be along soon. First, I stopped off at the hospital to check on Chris. The doctor wouldn't let me stay long, but he said Chris would be all right. So I scooted right back over to Sam's office to brush up some of the details. Sam was rocking back and forth in his squeaky chair, a dossier on H. Mancheck in one hand and a pen in the other. Oh, George, and I'm glad you came so promptly. There are still a few questions I would like to ask to make this dossier complete. Uh, shoot, Sam. Oh, first, uh, how is Chris? Seems to be okay. Doc says he'll work it out. Good. A fine young man. Now, Jordan, if you please, would you trace Chris's movement up until the time he was shot? Sure, Sam. When I told him about the insurance policy Adelaide was supposed to have taken out, he knew something was wrong. He went to the insurance company to check. And that is when Mancheck became aware that Chris might be one who could spoil his scheme. Yeah, right. Mancheck followed Chris to the Elmox Bazaar when Chris went to talk things over with Prince Rico, who had also known Adelaide and how she died. When Chris left the tent, Mancheck cut him down. Mm, I see. Now, about the policy itself, the signature upon it will prove, of course, that it was not Adelaide Foss who signed it, but Manchek himself. Now, why did he choose to call you Adelaide's husband? Well, as near as I can figure it out, if the insurance company had to pay a claim to a husband, there wouldn't be much investigation. Why I was picked to be the husband, well, he needed someone who had some association with Adelaide. Yeah. And someone he thought might be willing to shut his eyes and go along with his scheme for the $20,000. Now, one thing more, Jordan. Why was Manchek not able to cash the check you wrote him? Insufficient funds, remember? But the $40,000 check deposited more than covered the $20,000 check Manchek wished to cash. Uh-uh, Sam. The bank wouldn't accept the $40,000 check for deposit. Oh, and why? Because I didn't endorse it right. The name I wrote on the back wasn't mine. It was Adelaide Foss. <laughs> For the finest in tomato flavor, enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte ketchup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomatoes. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Rocky Jordan, written by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell, with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. And the story is Pattern for Revenge. <laughs> When it's real corn patch flavor you want, just ask for Del Monte corn, either golden cream style or whole kernel. Yes, if you want rich, melt-in-your-mouth, butter-tender corn, look for Del Monte, the brand that always puts flavor first. Next Sunday, Rocky Jordan will come to you at a new time, one half hour later. Here's the lineup. 
You will hear Jack Benny, then Amos and Andy, then Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and then Rocky Jordan. Larry Thor speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was Memento from Adelaide, Rocky Jordan from September 22nd, 1949. The voice of Chris was provided by the sound of it by master voice Ben Wright. As for Sam Zabaya, radio and film veteran Jay Novello provided his gravelly tones. Novello had dozens of film roles to his credit, too, ranging from the 1930s, actually he did some silent films before that, to the 1970s. We'll step into the weird circle next here on Skywave Audio Theater. Signora Benadonna builds bell towers, and uh, to go with it, he has a high opinion of himself. Is his work worthy of his self-esteem? Has he heard of the Tower of Babel? The off-kilter Tower of Pisa? How high can he build his tower? A hundred feet? Two hundred? Three hundred? Can he accomplish his feat with engineering, or is he going to have to enter into a partnership with someone who's got power is best left untapped. Our story is called The Bell Tower. It's the Weird Circle from September 24, 1944. Phantoms of a world gone by speak again the immortal tale, the bell tower. Here is the ruin of the famous bell tower built by the great Bonadonna four centuries ago. It doesn't look like much, does it? A heap of rubble, shapeless, covered with earth and black moss. If I hadn't told you it was once a bell tower, the pride of all Italy, you would think it was only an ugly rubbish pile, mercifully grown over by the jungle of time. But dreams lie buried here, and memories, and the ghosts of a man and his genius are said to haunt the spot. Some even say the spirit of Bonadonna's bell still tolls high up in the silent night sky. Others scoff, a bell cannot have a ghost, even if there were such things. But what is that ghostly sound? Surely no earthly bell ever sounded like that? Can it be that Bonadonna's bell actually does toll for its long-dead maker, though this tower that supported it is now no more? Or does the shade of Bonadonna himself still linger here, thinking back to the day... He was called in by the chief magistrate of the town. I'm uh, flattered, Your Honor, that the chief magistrate of so prosperous a town should have heard of the humble architect called Bonadonna. 
your pretended modesty is not very convincing, Signor Bonadona. <laughs> but uh, if I were responsible for the wonderful monuments you have built, I, I suppose I wouldn't be very modest either. Naturally, naturally. But there is only one Bonadonna. Perhaps you should start by imagining yourself Michelangelo and work up to imagining yourself the incomparable Bonadonna. <clears throat> Michelangelo was a very great artist. Mm. A beginner. He would have sat at my feet. Your views are interesting, Signor Bonadonna, but it was not to discuss art that I summoned you Spare here. Spare the oratory, Your Honor. My time is valuable. <clears throat> to be sure. Briefly, Signor, our town has grown rich through trade with the Near East. And now, at last, we can afford the finest monument in all of Italy. The elders have voted to have you build the most imposing bell tower that your genius can conceive. Your town must be very rich indeed to afford my services. Never fear, the money is there. More than you have ever been paid before. And if you build a bell tower that will bring admirers from all over the civilized world, you will get a bonus of twice the fee agreed upon. Hmm. That is an incentive. Can you fulfill it? I will erect a bell tower that will endure forever. Its fame will be known wherever men dwell, be it in, in palaces or caves. That, Signor Bonadona, is precisely what we want. And I am just the man to do it. Always bustling with commerce, its harbor filled with proud sailing ships and the streets with sailors from all over the Mediterranean, the town suddenly realized what real activity was when Bonadona brought his crew of masons and artisans. The chief magistrate and the elders came day by day to marvel as stone by stone and month after month the tower strained toward the sky. But there were some who grumbled at this amazing creation of Bonadonna's genius. I tell you, Bonadonna is mad. No matter how great an architect he is, he can't build a tower as high as this without a wider base. He wants to build it so slim and tall that people will wonder how it stands against even the gentlest breeze. Against the breeze, yes. But when the winter gales roar down from the mountains... Uh, it'll uh, topple like a pencil stood on end. Take it easy. Uh, Here. More bricks for you, Enrico and Cesare. Careful how you dump those bricks, Paolo. You want the whole insane tower to come tumbling down? Oh, you two are always grumbling. One would think you were better architects than Balladonna himself. <laughs> better than he used to be? No. But Signor Bonadonna is not as sane and cautious as he once was. What? Are you hinting that he is... Crazy? A... Yes. Uh, 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 you, you think he is not a maniac, eh, Paolo? That's right. We will prove it then. We are on the top of the tower, huh? How high above the ground are we? 200 feet. And Bonadonna proposes to build it another 100 feet. 300 and all. Yet the base is wide enough for a tower only half that height. Already you can feel its sway when the wind is strong. What will happen when the winter comes and the gales roar down from the mountains? Always you are asking that question, Enrico. And you never phrase it differently. This is no time for literary effect. Answer what I ask. Well, I, I don't know. I am no Bernadonna. He must have made allowances for the wind and earthquakes. <laughs> With a huge bell and clock on top of the tower. The weight alone <laughs> will be enough to pull the whole thing down. And when the gales roar down from the mountain... I know, I know. Well, I, I will admit that my wife worries when I leave for work in the morning. And why, Paolo? Well, it's silly. 
You know how women talk. She says if the tower stands when it is 300 feet tall, it will prove that Banadonna is in league with... with Satan. Ah. That is a possibility, Jesus. Of course, Enrico. I had not thought of it. That would explain why he thinks it can stand on so small a base. And the gales that will roar down from the mountains will not tumble it to the ground. Bonadona, in league with Satan. Hey! Hey, you up there! What are you doing chattering and loafing? Get to work! Slave driver! Tool of the devil! The Lord will have vengeance for this blasphemous bell tower. He will smash it to the ground, and you along with it. Swing it over to the mole. Ready now. Into the mold. Pour. There. Everything is finished. Now all we have to do is wait for the bell to cool in its mold. And then haul it up to the top of the tower. Senor Bernadotte. What is it, Paolo? The men and I, we have been talking. My wife, too. Of course, you know what women are, but uh, it's a different with the men. I mean, we're all experienced. We've worked with you a long time. What in the name of heaven are you gabbling about? Uh, you dare to use that sacred name, you? Name of the saints who has a better right than the great Banadonna. Will you come to the point? It's uh, the bell tower, senor. There is only one way that a tower so high can be supported by so slim a base. yes. Which way is that? By, by a pact with the devil. Ah, you fools! You superstitious apes! I am hundreds of years ahead of my time. I worked out mathematically every stress and strain before the first shovel dug into the soil. I don't need Satan. My science is enough. Uh, but, senor, look at the size of the bell we are casting. When we pull it up to the top of the tower, its weight will make the whole Stupido, thing. Stupido, Signor Banadonna, what are you going to do? You won't stop me. Senor. You hear? Senor. This tower, this tower senor. is my dream. No, no senor. I'll senor. kill you. You senor. will interfere with no. my plans. Go in. There. That will teach you to meddle. Does anyone else want a taste of the same medicine? I thought not. All right. Remove the body of this poor dead fool. And then get back to work. And I'll stand for no more nonsense. Or Paolo will have company in a graveyard. You will hang for this. The great Banadonna? Hang for the killing of a stupid pig? I know. There is no court that would convict the greatest architect in all Italy. Poor Paolo. How are we going to break the news to his wife? Look, with one blow of that murderous ladle, that devil's accomplice smashed in his skull. See how the blood is spattered everywhere. Oh, Enrico. What is it, Cesare? Look at the bell we are casting. Dio mio. A drop of Paolo's blood splashed into the molten metal. It is an evil omen. 
<clears throat> Your attention, please, worshipful elders of our fair town. We are gathered here to sit in judgment upon one Bonadona architect who has been accused of slaying one Paolo artisan. You have heard the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now I will call the defendant to state his case. Signor Bonadona, what have you to say in your defense? If it please, Your Honor, would you clear the court of all spectators and witnesses for the deceased? Very well. Clear the court. Thank you, Your Honor. <clears throat> now, Signor Bonadona, is it or is it not true that you killed Paolo, the artisan, with a blow of a heavy utensil known as a ladle, which is used for pouring molten metal? Uh, yes, yes, I did, Your Honor. <clears throat> then you plead guilty. Oh, no, 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 Your Honor. I would not do anything like that to harm your interests. Eh? <clears throat> how, how would you pleading guilty harm my interests? The bell tower I'm building is a very costly monument, is it not? Naturally, naturally. Our town is rich and we want nothing but the best. But a half-completed tower would be the laughing stock of all Italy, isn't it so? Not to mention a waste of the money that has already been spent on it. <clears throat> you have a point there. I can imagine the scene a hundred years from now. Visitors from some distant land are gazing at the topless monstrosity. Oh, how sad, one of them exclaims. This could have been the most beautiful bell tower in the whole wide world. Why was it never finished? Do you not know, asks another. The architect, the maestro Bonadonna, slew a meddlesome fool who got just what he deserved. But Bonadonna... Bonadonna was hanged. The tower was never completed because nobody could duplicate the great architect's plans and the art of designing monuments was set back for many centuries. Oh, what a pity, the first one laments. It's enough to wrench even a tyrant's heart. Mm. <clears throat> of course, justice must be done, Signor Bonadonna. Justice has been done. Paolo would have worked his fellow idiots into a superstitious rage. And all the money, all the money you have invested in the tower would have gone for naught. <clears throat> yes, Signor Bonadonna. Yes. We, the elders and I, have the sacred duty of handling our neighbor's money. Therefore, it is my opinion that you acted wisely and in the best interest of the town by quelling the threatened revolt. Do you agree, venerable colleagues? I, I... Mm. Oh, yes, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think then, Signor Bonadonna, we absolve you of all guilt in the death of one Paolo Artisan. Thank you, gentlemen. I knew you would not allow justice to be undone. And now I shall return to my work on the bell tower, which I will force to completion as speedily as possible. Adio. Faithful friends, the great Bonadonna is free. Well, why is it that some of you do not look properly joyful? You are free now, you tool of Satan. But Paolo will have his revenge from the grave. And soon!
That drop of blood that splashed into the molten casting of the bell when Vanadona killed Paolo, everyone said was an omen from beyond. An omen that poor dead Paolo would take vengeance on Vanadona for his murder. Yet, nothing seemed to happen. But the day finally arrived when the bell was to be swung up to the top of the tower. And then, at last, the workmen felt that Vanadona's time on earth was drawing to an end. What a beauty. The biggest and most exquisite bell that ever was made. Oh, but wait. What is this? A flaw at the nape of my beautiful bell. Oh, I will soon have this fold fixed. Just chip out the weak metal. Scrape away the rough edges. And fill it in with this, this secret formula of mine. There. There is good as new. All right, everybody. We're ready to swing the bell into position. Grab the rope. Ready now. Pull. Easy now. Easy. That's it. That's it. Down, down a bit. All right. All right. There you are. There. The bell is in place. Now, what have you to say, you ignorant jackanapes? You thought you could teach Bonadonna something about architecture, huh? Well, this bell tower will outlast you and your entire line of descendants. Perhaps it will outlast time itself. And now, now I start on the mechanism to strike the bell on the hours. If my tower is the wonder of Italy, my mechanical ringer will be the wonder of the world. I'm coming. I'm coming. The idea of waking up a man of my position at this time of night. Well? Well, well, what is it? Your pardon, Your Honor. Forgive us for waking you so late at night. Yes, but it was necessary, Your Honor. It's urgent. Hey? Oh, oh, you're two of the men who worked on the bell tower, aren't you? Yes, Your Honor. Yes. What's wrong? Has an accident befallen Signor Bonadona? No, Your Honor, not yet. That mechanism he is perfecting to strike the hours. He's working secretly on it at the top of the tower. Everything he needs is brought to the bottom, carefully wrapped up. He opens the door and takes the packages. He permits nobody to see what he's doing. I find nothing wrong with that. There are men who would sell their souls to learn Bonadona's secrets. Perhaps that is how he obtained those secrets. By selling his own soul. Hey, what's that? Are you bringing a formal charge of witchcraft against Signor Bonadona? Oh, no, Your Honor. Quiet, I... Cesare. No, Your Honor. We have told you that everything is brought to the bottom of the tower for Signor Bonadona. That was a mistake. There was one thing he went out and got himself. Yes, yes, yes. It was an object the size and shape of a man, wrapped round and round with a white cloth. If one were to dig up poor dead Paolo from his grave, Your Honor and carry him furtively to the tower late at night, still clad in his shroud. That is the sort of parcel one would carry, the sort we just saw Signor Bonadonna carrying. Hmm. 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 A corpse, an automatic ringing mechanism, and utter secrecy. There is a sinister logic about the combination. There's only one way to be certain. Yes, Your Honor. That is why we brought these shovels along with us. 
Hurry, Enrico! Chester! Yes, sir. This confounded night air was always hard on my arthritis. And here in this deserted graveyard, it seems still worse. We're almost out of the coffin, Your Honor. Ah, I've struck it. Good, good. Now make haste. All right, Chester. The top of the coffin is cleared. Now give me a hand in opening it. Right. But but Paolo's body is still there. Oh, Paolo is still here, Your Honor. But Signor Banadono could be using another dead body for his automatic mechanism. <laughs> you are right, Chisora. I will speak to Signor Banadona the very first thing in the morning. I heard something very disturbing yesterday. Uh, you, Signor Bonadona, are reputed to be making your secret ringing mechanism out of, uh, out of a, um... Yes? Out of a corpse. I see. One brought back to life, of course, enslaved by my, uh, my wizardry to strike the hours forevermore, huh? Naturally, you have a certain measure of proof, Your Honor. Oh, yes, yes. You were seen carrying what appeared to be a body wrapped in a shroud. It was late at night, and you were hurrying toward the tower as if wishing not to be observed. It is my inflexible practice never to display my inventions until they can safely be shown. That time will come when the tower is thrown open to the public. Well, uh, <clears throat> when will that be, senor? <laughs> Tomorrow at noon, your honor. And you will see that you and your precious townspeople are the worst pack of meddling fools that ever handicapped a genius. Now, if you will excuse me, I shall return to my work. What a strange man. I was so sure of myself. Well, we will know tomorrow if the rumors are true. I can't understand what is delaying Balladona. The bell was to ring at the stroke of noon. It is noon now, Your Honor. I know, Cesare. That's what puzzles me. Signor Balladona is usually a man of his word. Maybe he found it necessary to make some very sudden changes, Your Honor. That... Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that could very well be. Well, we shall soon find out. I'll hail him. Signor Balladona! Oh, Signor Balladona! He doesn't answer. Naturally. He is probably much too busy. Well, we won't give him any more time to destroy the evidence. <laughs> if we can prove a sorcery charge, we won't have to pay him a button. Open the door. It's locked. Then break it down. All right, men, follow me. No sign of him here in the lookout room. I'll see if he's in the clock room. Oh, what a climb. 300 feet straight up into the air. Your Honor, come here. What is it, Enrico? There, what? Your Honor, against the bell. It's Signor Bonadona. Dead. With his head bashed in just like poor Paolo. Serves him right if someone murdered him. But this was not murder, gentlemen. See? He was working on the bell with mallet and chisel. Yeah. 
Evidently, he had not turned off the clockwork. And, and, and the heavy hammer of the automatic bell ringer swung round with tremendous power and crushed his head against the bell. Then the bell ringer is what we thought it was. No, Cesare. It is no reanimated corpse. Then what? It is an amazingly intricate bit of machinery, more ingeniously wrought than any I have ever seen. And so, Signor Bonadona was not a tool of the devil. He was a genius, the greatest genius of our time. Then, then by whose vengeance did he die? Perhaps we will never know. From the dust he came, and to the dust he returns. Peace to your ashes, Bonadona. The world of men is poorer for your passing. <clears throat> Has Enrico reached the top of the tower yet, Cesare? Yes, Your Honor. Then give him the signal. All right, Enrico! and drove him so far into the ground, we won't have the expense of the funeral after all. But is it... Yes, Your Honor, just as we thought. What are you jabbering about? The bell, Your Honor. There was a flaw in it where poor Paolo's blood splashed into the molten metal as it was being cast. Signor Bernadona thought he repaired the flaw, but he hadn't. Hey, hey. Then what has that got to do with this calamity? It was right there, Your Honor, that Bernadona's famous bell cracked. And Paolo has taken his vengeance from the grave. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you the Bell Tower. Bellkeeper, pull the bell. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, Signor Benadonna. If you put too much pride into your bell tower, Paolo did get his revenge in a strange way. That was the bell tower, the weird circle, from September 24, 1944. One of the stranger approaches to engineering a bell tower, Paolo had a good reason to wreak vengeance against architect Benadonna. Next week, we'll be down to earth, way down to earth, I suppose, with crime classics, and we'll have some other adventures in sound, too. I'm Norman Gilliland, and I hope you'll join me then for more from Skywave Audio Theatre. <laughs>